Hey, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. In this episode, we're going to be doing a deep dive into the meaning of the zodiac sign Aquarius in astrology. So joining me today are astrologers Aaron Fogel and Bear River. Welcome, both of you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining me again on, um, I think, each of your second or third episodes uh, times joining me here on the podcast, this time to do Aquarius. And um, this is the 11th entry in this series on the signs of the zodiac. And sometimes we start by talking about the credentials of each of the persons participating. So what are each of your Aquarius sort of like street cred uh, credentials for the purpose of this show? So I have Sun in Aquarius, and it's my sect light, and I also have Mercury in Aquarius. Nice. Sun and Mercury, that's pretty good. Uh, Bear, what about you? I have the Moon in Aquarius, and it is also my sect light, um, and my chart ruler as well. Nice. Good. Uh, I am similar. I have the moon and the rising sign or ascendant in Aquarius. So moon and rising in Aquarius. And this is the last of the series of episodes where I have like something in that sign all of a sudden after doing like nine episodes where I had nothing uh, in the sign. (laughs) So this will be a good one. All right. So where do we start? So usually we start by contrasting what what I've been noticing and what I've been talking about a lot in this series is how, as you're going through the signs of the zodiac, um, each sign seems to have a sort of corrective function over the sign that came before it. And usually this is connected with some of the primary properties of the sign that have to do with the either the qualities or the rulerships, the planetary rulerships of that sign. So let me start first by just reading off some of the basic qualities of Aquarius. So this is Aquarius for the video viewers and the symbol for Aquarius. Aquarius is traditionally said to be a masculine or diurnal sign. It's said to be an air sign. It's connected with the element of air in terms of the four elements of earth, air, fire, and water. And it's said to be a fixed sign in terms of modality or quadruplicity in terms of the modalities of cardinal, fixed, and mutable because it falls in the middle of a specific season. In this instance, it's in the middle of the winter season, in the part of that season that falls just after um, the first part, which was Capricorn after the winter solstice. So in terms of planetary rulerships, uh, Aquarius is said to be the sign of the domicile or the, the home or dwelling place traditionally of the planet Saturn. And it's said to be the sign of the detriment or the antithesis of the sun, because Aquarius is the sign exactly opposite to the ruling sign of the sun, which is Leo, which in the Northern Hemisphere falls in like the middle. Leo is the middle of the summer versus Aquarius, which is the middle of the winter. So going back to my um, zodiac illustration here, we can see that While there's some continuity between Capricorn and Aquarius because they're both signs that are ruled by Saturn, um, there is a major shift in terms of all of the rest of the qualities. Whereas Capricorn was a cardinal sign, uh, Aquarius is a fixed sign. Whereas Capricorn is an earth sign, Aquarius is an air sign. And whereas Capricorn is a feminine or nocturnal sign, Aquarius is said to be a masculine or diurnal sign. 
So there's some continuity, but also some major, major differences. Um, what are some of the things that either come up for either of you when you think of Aquarius on its own or where, where you think of it relative to Capricorn? Yeah, I think about all three of the last zodiac signs as collective signs. And so part of the transition for me between Capricorn and Aquarius is like what we are doing with collective information or shared experiences, like on a larger level. And I often think about Capricorn as a ladder, like it's directional, it can be upward oriented, um, it may be more focused, like the cardinality gives us a sense that it's in motion versus Aquarius, which is more of a network or a web of something that is interconnected and sustaining. There's a sense that everything within it is on the same level um, or has this uh, intention of equity behind it. So I think of that transition as moving from like this upwards moving ladder into more of a interconnected web. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. I like that keyword of interconnectedness because this is the third instance that we've met an air sign. Um, and the first two with Mercury, for example, Gemini, which was very much about communication. And then there was Libra, which was a Venus ruled air sign, which had more of a social component. With Aquarius, we get into similar things in terms of a similar um, social or communicative component. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think um, I really like what you said, Aaron, about taking Capricorn through Pisces together as a group. And that made me think about the wintertime. Um, my ancestors are on my mom's side are Alaskan Native, and the wintertime is the time that's reserved for telling the sacred stories. And in terms of Capricorn and Aquarius, I often think about those two different aspects of Saturn as the difference between learning how to make something of your culture from your ancestors or from your grandparents, like the wisdom you gain on their knee being very, um, very earthy, like Capricorn, versus um, forward-thinking social norms and that communicative aspect that is oriented towards thinking forward seven generations. And so that quality of um, kind of drying out the potentially sentimental, my family, my ancestors, this particular object qualities that can come with uh, Capricorn and orienting more towards our culture, what makes us sustain, what makes us capable um, to be fixed in that Aquarian way. Mm, That's Mm. beautiful. I love the... um the aspect of Aquarius season as a storytelling time that feels really fitting as well. Uh, And I've even been thinking about Capricorn and Aquarius um, in their different orientation to time itself, especially with Saturn as the ruler, which is our timekeeper. And I think about Capricorn more as like a progression of time, which uh, very much has to do with that aspect of ancestry and legacy that you were mentioning, Bear. Um, and coming out of like time as something that progresses or moves in a linear way towards the future into Aquarius where um, like time and space don't exist in a way or time is also a network or something that is simultaneous and kind of has this 
larger context and um storytelling feels very much like that to me like it's it's a um an expression that interconnects us with different moments in space and time mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. i like that because capricorn as an earth sign um feels more focused on like that which is material or concrete or has substance to it um like you know building a building or building up a business or something like that versus um aquarius you know that which is concrete sometimes can be ideas and and narratives and stories and social structures which even though they don't have let's say always like a physical reality um there's still something very tangible and very um important about them that creates a foundation or a structure for society in general Mm-hmm. Yeah, that material quality being like the mountain that the sea goat of Capricorn is climbing um, makes me think about geological time um, and the way that mountains turn into dirt eventually on a long enough timeline versus Aquarius having that potentially like, you know, air is everywhere. It's, it could be fractal, it could be holographic, you know, but ideas also, you know, Nothing moves faster than the speed of light, except maybe potentially an idea or a meme or a story. Um, and they also can be truly immortal in a way that even mountains can't be. When it makes me think of like the, the internet as well, which is like, on the one hand, is something that's so theoretically like impermanent. Like if, it, like an EM, if the sun sent out like an EMP wave that just like wiped out you know, most of the computers in the world today, most of our current documentation of like history and culture and society and social networks and everything that's happened today would just be gone and would disappear as if it never existed and yet today you know failing that all of that stuff all those communications that huge communications network around the world that's developed over the past 30 years um has a really tangible reality to all of us just by virtue of it existing and the way that it connects all of us through um, these different networks, and there's something very, very Aquarian about that. Mm, yeah, mm-hmm. Aquarius is definitely um, connected to the internet, and you know the the www really like came into fruition uh, the last time Saturn was in Aquarius in the early '90s. Um, and I think what you're saying, Chris, is really relevant also to the transition from earth to air again because capricorn is of the earth like the information that we have is in capricorn is in our bones it's um in our geological earth and in our physical home um but in aquarius it, it that information exists in our minds and in our relationship to one another and it's ephemeral like it's not something that is of like tangible 3d reality yeah um and there's a sort of ambition to Capricorn, a, an upward mobility sort of ambition to get to the top of things or to get to the top of a mountain. And with Aquarius, I feel like it can be similarly ambitious to a certain extent, but it's more ambitious in the field of ideas or the field of ideology. And as a fixed sign, a fixed air sign, um, I feel like it it can sometimes be, on the one hand, while Aquarius is oft, often associated with rejecting social convention, sometimes it can also be like the most ideologically fixed in terms of once it establishes a belief, 
to, to being very adamant about that belief or that ideology, whatever that is, um, which is kind of an interesting almost contradiction in terms of being an air sign, which is usually more free-flowing in other instances like, like Gemini, which is a very light, airy sign. Um, but here things get heavier, like thoughts get more serious, and um, views or opinions get a little bit more fixed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think comparing the three air signs, you know, Gemini being Mercury's air sign, it is very light and, you know, flirty and social, and it's sufficient to just talk about it. And Libra's Venusian qualities are so, so rena- relational. Um, but then Aquarius is Saturnian, you know, so it's about taking those ideas and, you know, setting them into stone, whether that's in the way that um, society is structured. Or whether that's literally codifying things um, in stone, making things permanent, I think is a really important feature of the sign. Mm. Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. Um, all right. So other things when it comes to this sign that are really important in terms of like basic qualities. So we're talking about a contrast with Saturn. Um, I mean, I know that's a that's a major issue and discrepancy, and this is one of the first times, I guess, aside from Scorpio, where you do run into a discrepancy between modern versus versus ancient astrology, where modern astrologers tend to associate the sign with Aquari- with um, Uranus, whereas in ancient astrology, for the first two thousand years, it tended to be associated with Saturn. And so we, um, I've been doing more of a traditional take on the signs of the zodiac during this series. So we'll be focusing on Saturn, and and one of the things that sometimes comes up in that context is I think because it's a it's a fixed air sign, and you get that communicative quality as well as sometimes a, a technological component that comes partially through um, Saturn being connected as an air sign and making sometimes communications more. Um, concrete, um, I think sometimes some of those traditional qualities with Aquarius can either get confused for Uranian significations or where there can be a great deal of, of overlap that kind of explains how some of those still can make place in a traditional, make sense in a traditional context. Yeah, I think that a lot of the associations with Aquarius that people might think of sometimes as Uranian qualities actually have to do with the fact that Aquarius is the detriment of the sun. Um, and so that's where some of those qualities come from, which I know we'll talk about at some point. Uh, but Uranus is erratic and fast-paced and wants change immediately. And those are not necessarily Aquarian qualities. Like Aquarius does not actually like the process of change. It just wants things to already be different or already be in some kind of altered, bettered state. Um, But Uranus is more involved with the process of change itself and has that kind of eroticism. I did think it was funny (laughs) that um, at the time that we started this recording, Uranus was on the Ascendant. And so we were probably bound to talk about it anyways. Okay. Yeah, Uranus was on. I had... Late Taurus rising here, so I didn't give the data, but it's January twenty second, twenty twenty three, um, and we started about what sixteen minutes ago. It's twelve forty three p.m. here, so that is funny. And I think one of the things that happens, I think that we that's worth getting into now, but how um, Aquarius being the sign that's opposite to Leo, and Leo is ruled by the Sun, 
and everything kind of um, everything in the solar system revolves around the sun, and the sun has a way then of setting kind of social conventions sometimes, or representing that which um, is sort of the norm that things normally revolve around. Uh, whereas Aquarius, being opposite to that and ruled by Saturn, one of the primary functions of Saturn is saying no to things or rejecting things. And so I think that becomes part of the conceptual reason why Aquarius can often be associated with rejection of social conventions, because it's part of that function of Saturn to say no to things or to critique or criticize or stand outside, um, not in the center, but instead around the periphery of things. And to be able to like stand outside and like not be part of the in crowd, and to be then sort of um, sometimes a, a loner or unique or or some of those other qualities, and to sometimes really identify itself with that. For Aquarius to have its self identity sometimes very much wrapped up in you know not being uh, the center of what's common, but instead doing things that are somewhat unconventional or eccentric in that way mm -hmm. yeah i think about one of the things i often use to anchor saturn is to talk about saturn's exaltation in libra actually and the word discernment um and the way that too much discernment can lead to discrimination and what we're really pointing at is the walls who's in who's out saturn like you said chris you know saturn says no and i think in aquarius with respect to groups and identity and that quality of identifying oneself by which group you're not a part of um, i think aquarius can be oriented towards towards noticing that first who doesn't fit who doesn't belong who's not included and so those kind of progressive radical um you know i remember learning when i was really really young this idea that Aquarius is the the sign that roots for the underdog or fights for the underdog, and I think some people might associate that with a radical or revolutionary Uranian impulse. But I think that has to do with Saturn, if it, the, the Saturnian quality of being bound to those ideals, like the Aquarian fixedness comes in, and then Saturn comes in and says, I, "I'm going to." I'm going to chain myself to this idea completely. I am this thing. Um, and if that identity is oriented towards these people should belong and they don't presently, then I think to Aaron's point, you know, Aquarius is ready for that future where everyone is included to be here now. And so you get that the combination of qualities can look like Uranus. But I think it's a lot of different subtle things going on with, um, with Aquarius itself. Mm. Absolutely, yeah, and and you mentioned the aspect of both Saturn and Saturn signs as um, having a lot of discernment, and I think that that's really key to both Capricorn and Aquarius. But discernment also makes me think of objectivity. Like, in order to have discernment, you need to be able to have enough of an objective sense of the many options that you are discerning between. Um, and that's very much an air sign experience to me is to be able to step back and look at things objectively or look at things from some kind of bigger picture. But like you're saying, the challenge with Aquarius can come when that objectivity uh, becomes 
over-objective or when there is this sense of being disconnected or divorced from the actual reality at hand, which can lead to sometimes a perspective that might be more radical. Like when we are um, looking at everything equally and all possibility equally, sometimes that can lead to a feeling of nihilism or anarchy or like deep pessimism. Um, and I think that's where some of the uh, like disconnect can come in with Aquarius as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Disconnect, that's a good one. Dissociation is another word that came to mind as you were talking. Yeah. Dissociation big time is a struggle for Aquarius. <laughs> yes. Because <laughs> it's beyond Capricorn's bodily experience. Capricorn is of the body and of the earth, and Aquarius is beyond the body. And I mm -hmm. think that that also gives rise to a lot of the really beautiful expressions of the sign um, because it gives Aquarius this capacity to go beyond um, cultural norms, physical norms, uh, gender sexuality norms, and allows us to um, go beyond the kind of uh, like physical correlations that are there sometimes that might be more held in Capricorn. Um, but then, of course, if we swing too far to the other end of the spectrum, we can just become dissociated from our body or the physical earth itself that we're part of. Mm. Yeah, I, I suspect we might get to some of these themes a bit later um, if we talk about any upcoming transits or um, current Aquarian, um, <clears throat> Aquarian vibes in the sky. But it made me think about the like being able to get so far away from the body that one might be really tempted to want to plug into like an AI neural network because um, you don't have to eat there or deal with any of that pesky bodily stuff. And from the perspective of Aquarius, like Capricorn becomes the 12th house. It's like, ah, let me just forget about that stuff back there. So true. I am wishing I had looked up their birthdays, but the, the creators of The Matrix, like that movie feels so Aquarian mm. to me because it's like, well, we could just be brains and bats and, you know, that, that would be fine. And there is a whole school of philosophy that is basically just an ongoing argument about whether or not we are actually just brains and bats and not actually bodies on the earth. Um, and it was probably started by Aquarians. Yeah, yeah, that's such an Aquarian discussion. Like the notion of the, like the central premise of the Matrix was just, just like you could be sitting, eating somewhere at a fine restaurant and you're enjoying the food but it's just like that a computer is like sending messages to your brain telling you that you're like enjoying that and so therefore you have the perception of it even if your body is actually like not there and is, is off somewhere else not experiencing mm -hmm. that um so what is that what's at the core of that i guess at the core of that is the ability maybe of aquarius to focus on both technology but also like the mind um and even science to a certain extent like aquarius is kind of like a scientific sign and part of what comes with that i think that's really important is understanding aquarius as in terms of the qualities the stoic the original stoic qualities that it's a cold sign and that's opposite to leo which is a a, a hot fire sign and sometimes with Aquarius, both for good and bad, it can be associated with this cold quality or this sort of coldness, which can sometimes come through as like emotional coldness, um, but also a sort of cold, um, 
objectiveness, like the ability to be objective and like not be emotionally invested in something in some instances, or to focus on um, the the sort of more intellectual or philosophical arguments instead of the ones that come more from an emotional standpoint or from the heart or or what have you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that that dissociative quality, the ability, again, that Saturnian ability to say, no, this thing is not that thing. This thing stands in opposition to another thing, um, can lead to uh, this body is part of me, but it is not all of me. The body is not the same as the self. And if you're quite grounded in that, I think it can lead to a type of like scientific, experimental um, type of approach to observing the body. Um, it made me think about, and I wish I could remember the name of this person. There was a TED talk of a scientist, a woman who had a stroke, and she's a like a neuroscientist. And so, as she's having the stroke, she realizes that she's got the perfect opportunity to get firsthand firsthand data about what happens when there's when you experience a stroke. And her TED talk is about that experience, and then recovering from the stroke, and and then relaying that, like parlaying that into research. Um, or even like for me, one of my trans astrologer good um, experiences right now is this nerve injury that has me occasionally experiencing things like being in water as though a, a full-grown human were sitting on my arm. Um, and I know that that's not accurate. And so that quality of like, oh yes, the thing, the, the data the body is sending is just data and not personalizing it or taking it too seriously. I think there's that cold, um, cold and dry and if i understand correctly dry dryness brings um separation and so i think we see that separation from the body and those qualities mm, for sure mm-hmm. yeah and that sense of a fixed cold dry air sign um being something that has really strong ideals about the collective and what could be but not necessarily a sense of human connection or attachment to the realities of working our way there. And I think that that's where a lot of the notions of the sign of um, perfectionism or extremely high expectations can come from as well, because there is this strong, fixed, cold idea of um, where we all can be, and it's connected to possibility, which is something that is beyond like earthiness beyond Capricorn, beyond like the reality of what is, we're seeing the possibility of what could be. But then the fixity around that is when it can be cold and dehumanizing and disconnected. Mm. Yeah. Austin, my friend Austin always likes to joke about this. Like one time we were at a conference and a friend of ours, and it's a joke about he uses an, as an example of my Aquarius moon and rising about uh, how a friend of ours like, got sick with like a cold or something at the beginning of this conference. She was in really bad shape. And so I, I had to take her to drive her to the emergency room at one point. And then we're like sitting there in the um, waiting room of the doctor. And uh, she's like really sick. And I um, took out, I was like, this like, um, I was reading like Vadius Valens at the time, like a translation of Valens, and there's like this stoic passage about like stoicism and like intellectually accepting the things that you have to go through um, so that you're not like thrown off by them and, and that you can accept everything because it's just 
perception of your mind and all this other stuff. And I was like, I was like, he, and Austin always laughs and says, talks about how I, I tried to like share that passage with them. I was like, here, read this. It might be helpful for you at the time. When in reality, what she needed was just like a hug or something like that. But, <laughs> you know, me, I'm trying to share something, you know, intellectual about how the help her get through this, that theoretically from that more detached emotional standpoint or, or what have you could be helpful, but it's kind of missing out on, on some elements I think that are, are important for humans. Yeah. If you bring an Aquarius to the hospital, they will explain to you why your experience makes sense in the larger context of time-space reality, but they won't even think to give you a hug necessarily. <laughs> right. Or, or explain how really this is all just like a simulation potentially. So you're not really feeling pain right now. It's just that your your body is being told, your brain is being told that you're feeling pain. So if you just change your perception of things, then everything will be will be different. Yes. Yes. Like I can I can give you data to help you inform your decision about how to respond to this event. Or I can help you conduct an experiment so you can gain more information based on this unfortunate occurrence. Um, and maybe if you've learned from prior experience, you'll also insert a would you like a hug? Is there something supportive that I should do for you? <laughs> right. So there's a certain robotic quality, I think, then I think we're getting at that sometimes gets associated with Aquarius, which is really funny. Um, and that actually is relevant, and we should circle around to that actually to, to you know, r robots and AI and, and machines and other things like that at some point. But one of the things that comes up that's been interesting in the two episodes before this one just as a theme on the podcast this month has been um, science and skepticism and the role of, of science in society as well as like the scientific method as this, as this attempt to um, you know, determine facts about nature and about reality that are objective, partially due to the belief that um, that our senses, that human senses are fundamentally flawed in terms of our, our ability to accurately um, see things for what they are. So, so it developed, they developed, humans have developed this like method of trying to um, get past that, get past the flaws in our senses, and instead look at things through things like statistics and averages, or by creating really controlled sometimes sterile um, laboratory-type conditions for testing things so that you can attempt to determine like what's true and what's not true. And there's something very scientific about that, where on the one hand, it's attempting to uh, achieve something intellectually and has, and had made, obviously modern science has made so many advancements and discoveries over the past few centuries. But then sometimes it can also be associated with this cold, detached quality, which can sometimes be good or in terms of objectivity, but other times be bad in terms of perhaps that's not all there is to life, or perhaps there's other elements that are sort of like outside of science or outside of at least the scientific method. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, I think that that relates to this idea of over-objectivity that can be one of the challenges of the sign. Um, because Aquarius is also about understanding. So wherever Aquarius is in everyone's chart is like where they seek to gain understanding of something or, or have a really broad scope of knowledge around something. It's a knowledge and understanding oriented sign. 
Um, and so the pursuit of a more objective framework for science is a very Aquarian pursuit, and I think a worthy one at that, but likely suffers if we try to actually remove human experience altogether from the framework because um, like, we're not really able to see anything if not through our own perspective. Like There has to be some element of understanding that we are subjective creatures. And I think this is uh, one of the challenges with Aquarius is the desire to go beyond all subjectivity or beyond all human experience into something that ideally has a more perfect um, objective framework to it. But that can, of course, have its own shortcomings. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I keep Go thinking ahead. it like Saturn put the both the rational and the materialism in rational materialism, and it's Capricorn that brings the material, and it's the Aquarius that's like okay, but make it rational, um, and even you know science over the course of the last couple hundred years, depending on which particular experiments or or, or movements or hypotheses you're, you're thinking about, has given us ample data. To suggest that we just don't have the sensory equipment to have a truly objective data set. Like we can't interface fully objectively with reality. Um, but something about the idea of going from Capricorn, the thinking, thinking to what you said at the beginning of, of this episode, Aaron, about thinking about Capricorn through Pisces as a whole, that if we, in Aquarius, we potentially go overboard fixating on making things as objective as possible um then and doing so in a way that really does dehumanize it like the idea that we could put a monk in an in an mri and through enough different experiments that we could somehow scientifically figure out like oh well that's really the the few synapses that make meditation as if there isn't something more human happening and i think that kind of points us towards that shift that the correction that pisces represents that there is something more than just what you can what you can think like Descartes yes if you're thinking you definitely are but that is not like that's maybe necessary but it is not sufficient or maybe it's the other way around um but it's definitely an incomplete um perspective of what it means to be if we're just focusing on what we can think and what we can rationally understand or um control in time and space or limit in time and space yeah, that makes me think of going back to what you were saying, Bear, in terms of narratives and like the passing on of um, stories and myths and of um, shared wisdom from the past that gets passed on collectively or becomes a collective part of our understanding in different cultures or in cultures in general. Makes me like like science to a certain extent is that as well because it is, is the collective. It's a, a body of research that's compiled by a number of different pe- people over a period of time that represents oftentimes like things like consensus. That might be a good Aquarius uh, keyword, like an attempt for a group to find consensus. Um, but another keyword that comes to mind for Aquarius that's kind of interesting that I just thought of is a library, because like a library is like a, a repository of information on books. And if you take it back to the very beginning, like um, before there were books, there was just speech. 
And that's kind of like a Gemini thing, which is just, you know, somebody who's just talking or you're talking between two people. And then eventually you get to Libra and you start to get more about the social implications of speech and like what's appropriate or what's not appropriate to say or what's polite versus what's vulgar in a social context. But then eventually you get to Aquarius and you're talking about um, speech and trying to capture it by writing it down and putting it in words in the written form in a book. And so Saturn in that context is concretizing something uh, in the same way that it did to a certain extent in Capricorn and making it fixed in Aquarius by trying to make speech permanent and then attempting to build up like large repositories of that that represent like the collective wisdom or words or speech of large groups of people that's then passed passed down in generations. Yes. And so mm. many different responses to that. I mean, just on the surface, like, yes, like library. Oh yeah. Aquarius is airy. Oh, like the cloud, like the cloud is the internet library of all information. That mm. one's pretty surface level, but thinking about the Gemini to Libra to Aquarius, I've, because of my very, very mixed ancestry and having, you know, my great, great grandmother on my purely matrilineal side was indigenous in the bush of Alaska, hunter, gatherer, pre-literate, non-literate, whatever you want to call it, um, <clears throat> peoples. And we definitely are a group and we definitely have a culture, but we'd be really hard pressed to say that we have a society and definitely not a civilization. Um, and so I've been wondering about the difference between culture like Capricorn and civilization and society, state structures in Aquarius, and something about that, that process that you described, the speech in Gemini, the, you know, every, all peoples have some kind of speech or communication, and maybe the Libra, like, sim symbols are that kind of transition between speech and writing. And my people and other like Alaskan native peoples had, um, you know, storytelling knives and would draw stories in the dirt, but then erase it. And so there's this kind of like ephemeral quality there, with the symbolic artistic um, sort of quality of Libra. But then Saturn does come and bring, you know, writing and the earliest writing was in either like clay or stone uh, <clears throat> before we invented the technology to, to have paper various types of paper and i know techne and um, technology itself is another really good aquarius word that we can think about so thinking about the way that written literacy textuality um <clears throat> and is in some ways maybe a prerequisite for civilization um that technology of being able to make speech and symbols endure over a long period of time Kind of bringing together Saturn and maybe even a little bit of Mercury's triplicity in there, Jupiter too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think it, it gets back to something I've been thinking about with AI recently, which is like all, all technology oftentimes is either is trying to just enhance something that humans already do, or they or it's trying to make it easier to do that. Um, so, you know, uh this, for example, like we're using Zoom right now to talk over the internet, and it's just like enhancing our ability to do something that we already could have done, like in person, by like sitting down in person, or it's making something possible or easier to do instead of all us flying from different parts of the North America to like get together to talk in person. We're able to do this from home. 
but it's fundamentally still just recreating or, or still doing something that we already would have done or could have done prior to that time. Mm. Yeah, I think all of the air signs have um, these different representations or ways of communicating. Um, and Gemini might be how we communicate one-to-one directly to another person. Libra might be how we communicate to the group. So the ways that um, laws or sort of uh, social conventions and social norms are communicated. Um, but Aquarius, there's this sense of like, how do we communicate amongst all of humanity on mass, like on this really, really vast collective level? Um, and I often think that various forms of technology are trying to mimic or imitate things like telepathic communication that sort of re um, remove the need for us to be sitting down in a room together in order to communicate. Um, it's like the next best thing or some kind of tool or mechanism that allows us to communicate on that larger level. Yeah, because air is a element that allows things to be transmitted like from one place to another and i think that's the big thing about air is it represents a transitional stage um yeah where, where things are passed through air and that can be like communication in other instances it can be unfortunately like viruses or you know other things like that that can pass through the air and affect things even though they're otherwise imperceptible um, but it's just like the passage of one thing to another. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Something yeah. about what you said, Chris, about technology made me think about the the way that almost all technology is just replicating or attempting to improve something that we already do. Um, and that most of our favorite inventions as humans have tended to be ones that change our time, time-based relationship to that thing. Like the washing machine, we still have to wash, we still have to fold, but like washing and drying just got so much faster. We're still just talking, but like trying to, you know, even thinking about things like different types of motive transportation made the world so much smaller um, because it made it so much to take so much less time to get from one place to another. And so, like, that kind of like contraction making. Making the world smaller means that you can travel further and faster, which means that your relationship with time gets like funky and holographic and it isn't like super linear, which is interesting because coming in, I would have said to this episode, I would have said, well, Capricorn is, you know, nocturnal or feminine time. It's cyclical. Um, it's the way that you see your face. You look at a picture of your grandparents and you see your face in their face. Um, but after hearing Aaron, I'm like, no, I, I agree. I think that. Capricorn has the linear time and Aquarius has the, the everything is everything, which means it's nothing type of time. And the technology lets us do that. Mm, I love right. that. It's like uh, the two Saturn signs as different ways of efficiently using time. Um, and Capricorn will efficiently structure its time in a linear way, um, reducing any like divergence or anything that's unnecessary, any frill or fluff. Um, but then Aquarius is like, well, the most efficient use of time is just to teleport somewhere uh, so that I don't actually have to take the time to physically get myself there. <laughs> so I think that that's where like a lot of the 
more innovative notions of the sign come from is actually like inefficient use of time and space, which treats time as a simultaneous experience. Like everything is all at once. Um, what's that beautiful movie? Everything. I'm going to mess up the name of it. Everything, everywhere, all at once. <laughs> Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Um, what's the name of it, Chris? <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's everything, everywhere, all at once, I think, right? Yeah, yeah, I think so. It's such an exquisite Aquarian movie that I highly recommend to anyone who's trying to understand the sign. Like, just watch the movie and then it's like, oh, okay. Um, it, we're like, you know, interdimensional shapeshifters that are going realm to realm simultaneously to rebalance uh, the greater experience of humanity and all beings everywhere. So that's a good way to explain it. Yeah, for sure. Um, I like this this time or this temporal component. I think that's a really good point. I think we're getting onto something really important here with both Capricorn and Aquarius as Saturn ruled signs, and Saturn being the primary planet traditionally associated with time. Um, and I like this notion that it's like Capricorn is would be all about doing work more efficiently, and um, because time is all we have, time is ultimately like the most important currency because each of us has a finite amount of time at our disposal. So it's like ultimately one of the things it comes down to anytime you're like doing work for somebody is like you're giving up a small slice of your time, which ultimately means you're giving up a small slice of your life that you're giving to somebody. So you're really giving them your time, and time is the most precious um, thing, which sometimes we don't think about, especially when you're young. But it's like the older you get, you get the more and more you realize how important time is, and how much and how valuable it is. And especially, you know, towards the end of a person's life, they start thinking back, and I think even even get a greater sense of that because it's only once you really have a lack of something or you start to realize the scarcity of something that it becomes more important. But um, so Capricorn then would definitely want to focus on doing things more efficiently and finding ways that you could cut down time just by being more conservative or conserving your energy or conserving your time in different ways, which was one of our keywords in the last episode What for Capricorn was conservation. But Aquarius, I think, would be more like, or you could just invent this thing that will help you do this twice as fast or twice as efficiently. So it's like using a piece of technology to leverage things in order to give yourself more time or in order to take less time to do something. Mm. Even if the Aquarius ends up spending an inordinate amount of time, multiple factors more time inventing (laughs) the thing than if they just did the workaround or chose a different task instead and i wonder if part of that is the that that fixed fixedness around making that perfect future that could be here now manifest and like you know even if i don't benefit from it at least then it comes into being and then it can be done the right way um maybe there's something like that yeah totally and 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 the love of technology or like the the mad scientist archetype is kind of like an aquarius archetype i think of sometimes Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah and that sense of also just wanting to skip the process altogether which is an efficient use of time um but then doesn't often actually work in the experience of it like we still need 
the use of time and space in order to arrive at things. And um, I think Aquarius would prefer to just kind of like pick ourselves up and place us on the horizon line of where we're going rather than actually having the journey or the process of getting there. So in the long run, <laughs> it can mm. be less efficient with time. Um, but in the interest of creating tools and modalities that help us use time in the most efficient way. Mm -hmm. Something about yeah. like concretizing the ideology with respect to time, concretizing the efficiency being like the imperative there or something. Oh my God. Yeah. That reminds me of one of my favorite Aquarian images that I ever heard of um, was someone in a and it's like an early astrology class that I was taking many years ago. And we were learning about Aquarius. And they were like, so is Aquarius like a concrete block floating in the sky? <laughs> it just seemed like the most perfect description. And so you said concretizing. And it really made me think of that. Um, because it can be so uh, fixed or rigid in its own ideals or way of doing something. Um, but then there's this notion that it's floating in the sky, like it's also ungrounded from the earth and from reality. Totally, totally. I just wrote like a, a piece of, about Aquarius. It's like the, the icy cloud palace of, of, of the silent century or something like that. You know, Saturn's very quiet and our century at the, the edge of the solar system, but something about the iciness. Like, I know you're, you're Toronto based. I don't know if it gets quite cold enough to have ice hotels where you are but i spent some time in fairbanks and like having been to inside a space that is literally like the walls are made of ice like yes that is what aquarius is like ice palace but, but also concrete oh that's amazing yeah an ice palace or like superman's crystal fortress of solitude yes. <laughs> betraying my nerdiness right now yeah. but yes. the crystal fortress of solitude oh. is so aquarian to me it's like this place of aloneness in another realm that superman flies to um and gets recharged by his healing crystals like i can't believe that was in a comic book it's amazing oh, yeah and then when he becomes like when he's Clark Kent in his for Fortress of Solitude. I don't know if he can be Clark. No, that's when he's on the other side. Something in my head just tried to like burst forth about the opposition between Aquarius and Leo and like Superman when he's out there being seen by everybody as like the heroic Leo, the heroic individual that everyone's holding up there. But then like behind the scenes, it's actually the ice palace. No, that still makes sense because when he's Clark Kent, he's like participating in the world and he belongs and there's that sense of like Leo connection in his Clark Kent ide identity. And then as Superman, he's like beyond human. <laughs> Archetypal identity versus like lowercase person identity or something like that. Mm -hmm. And it makes me think of um, like the notions of projection that are associated with the sign as well. like. Most superheroes are these characters that we project something onto um, or our desire or uh, need for someone to be more perfect or beyond regular colloquial human experience. And I think that Aquarius is able to project something different, which is part of where the innovativeness of the sign comes from. Um, but also that it's a sign that can struggle with projection, um, 
when we are not able to um, like allow others or ourselves to be human. And that's where things can be held to these really, really extreme, almost inhuman ideals or expectations. Mm. Yeah, that's where you get the the Aquarius who loves people but not persons. <laughs> yes. That that trope. Um, but yeah, the idea of a person is great. The idea of people is fantastic, but then when you get into the nitty gritty, particularly if 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 Aquarius is stuck in that really rigid ideological <clears throat> perspective, well, this way is so, totally right. And if you judge every single person by your own your own perspective, then it be- can become really easy to see things in people that aren't really there. Mm-hmm. Or like developing a philosophy that's supposed to be applicable to like large groups of people, but then when it comes to actually one-on-one relating like that, running into an issue there. Mm-hmm. Mm, yeah. Like on paper, the idea of Kant's categorical imperative that you should be able to have a rule that you would do all the time and and apply it to everybody and then that would be great but in practice there's you could come up with just a, a very long list of all the ways in which any of those rules can kind of fall apart in in certain circumstances or contexts which makes me think about what you said chris about saturn's um the temporal qualities of saturn that saturn is the planet that deals in time the only currency saturn accepts is time and so you can learn a lot about Saturn and you can think a lot about Saturnian things and you can have Saturnian like experiences, but only through time can you actually learn Saturn's language or start to get an understanding of what time is. Kind of like the way that, you know, when you're young and you ask, What is love? How do I know if I'm in love? And all the adults are like, Oh, trust me, you'll know. You won't be confused if it happens time is kind of like that too and maybe that's part of like what happens with the the saturn return and getting past that opening sextile of the saturn after the saturn return that you start to get enough perspective of what time is it is in and of itself and then you get that capricorn orientation towards trying to save as much of it as possible because it is so precious or the aquarian like urgency and progressiveness that comes from seeing that the future is almost now, it is always imminent, and also that it extends many generations, seven generations or more. Um, and so the things we do now have have like a get force multiplied when we put when we extend their impact into the future. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because it it brings up something. I think it's really relevant here that we talked about briefly on the last episode, but that this humans always have this tendency and i think i first learned this from my first like history of astrology teacher nicholas campion where he did a lot of work on historical cycles and how they were viewed by astrologers through history and especially things like the age of aquarius actually which i guess is relevant here and he said that like humans are always either idealizing the past like idealizing some distant remote period in the past which i think now that I think about it, is is more of a Capricornian thing, as a as a nocturnal sign, like a, a looking back quality with Capricorn, or almost a more like a conservative quality of like you know things were were great back in the day. If only we could get back there, or or to that period where I grew up and everything was. You have this like idealized version of the past, even though things were never as great in the past as they sometimes seem. But then the other 
part of that is that humans sometimes have this quality then of idealizing the future, which is like another temporal, you know, component, another temporal perspective that's not focused on the here and now, but instead it's focusing on like how great things are going to be in the future, how, you know, technology is going to fix everything and like diseases and hardships and all these other things will be so much easier at some remote point in the future or you know astrologers for example sometimes will will think you know some point astrology will be proved and everybody will just accept astrology and then we'll live in this utopia where um you know people grow up learning astrology and everything is great and they don't really focus on any potential like downsides that might happen in the future or the fact that with the passage of time, it's like some things get better and some things get worse. Um, but life still at its core sometimes is very similar. Um, so I think that might be something going on here that might be another interesting contrast between Capricorn versus Aquarius is the ideal idealization of the past maybe more with Capricorn versus the idealization of the future more with, with Aquarius. Mm. Yeah, I think that's so true. And um there's this idea that the future can always be better than the present moment. Like we have no control over history um, and we have maybe some control over the present moment. But I think part of the idealization of the future that happens with Aquarius is that sense of projection that the future can be better or more perfect or more complete in some way than what's happening right now. And that is perhaps also where some of like the perfectionism slash procrastination aspects of the sign can come in um, because if things are not ready to be perfect yet or things are not ready to become this idealized state then maybe we'll wait till later to actually get to them yeah or, or that we can work towards that that we can actually control as if we're like time travelers by doing things in the present we can control and manipulate the future and make it better if we simply focus and like work towards something, whether it's a technology that'll change everything for, you know, our descendants in the future, or whether it's an ideology, um, I'm looking through some of my files right now, and there's a real like forward-thinking component to a lot of um, the people that are coming up, especially some of the the Mercury and Aquarius people. Like for example, um, Steve Jobs had Virgo rising and mercury stationary direct coming off of a retrograde in aquarius in the sixth whole sign house and he had just like a very forward thinking mindset in terms of technology and he was the founder of apple computers and um you know was able to like see this this period initially where everybody would have a personal computer and he both saw that in the future back in the 1970s or 1980s, but then also helped to create that, helped to like create the reality where nowadays everybody has like a computer, or he could see, you know, where things were headed with music and with um, mobile like MP3 players. And so he created the iPod, and then all of a sudden, like tons of people have an iPod and it completely transforms things like the music industry and helps to shift to um from like people buying cds and in, in record stores to everybody buying you know mp3s now online through the itunes store or other things like that or eventually even the um the iphone 
and, and his company being the first to create like a real smartphone and, and ushering in that whole transformation. So that like forward thinking component to especially technology can sometimes be like a major factor, I think. Mm-hmm. Let's see, um, other people like that. I mean, I know Alois Trendle is actually really good as an example of like an astrologer like that who was the founder of Astrodeanst or Astro.com. He has Taurus rising with Venus, Jupiter, and Mercury up in Aquarius in the 10th whole sign house. And again, just like he was one of the first people to create a website and to start doing computerized reports for astrology and to create a website where you could go and get your birth chart calculated for free and in the 1990s. And that was just a game changer in terms of like transforming the astrological community by making it easier for astrologers to get access to reliable and accurate chart calculations um, and just different things like that in terms of being forward thinking in terms of technology and doing things which at the time are out of the ordinary by doing something that not everybody else is doing and sometimes going against the grain or doing something that makes you stand out by being innovative but then eventually the, those innovations once they get adopted, they become commonplace. So that sometimes in retrospect, it's hard to see how these forward thinkers were actually kind of different or sometimes kind of weird initially in their time because eventually their uniqueness, um, you know, gets sort of subsumed by the culture eventually when it's seen to be useful or there's something advantageous about it and it becomes eventually commonplace. So that there's this almost like cyclical cyclical process between Leo and Aquarius, and like what is um, the norm versus what is outside of that, but then what is outside of that, oftentimes rotating into the center of things and becoming the norm after a long enough period of time. Mm, Absolutely, yeah. I feel like that's a combination of like the detriment of. The sign to the sun and then the fixity of the sign is that something may be seeded or may start in detriment to like the larger accepted norm um, but then the fixity of the sign allows it to have the persistence to see something through until it's actually been seeded in the larger collective um, and it makes me think about how Aquarius season also contains in bulk which is the midway point between the winter solstice and the spring equinox. And in bulk is this time of seeding something where the seeds that have been planted through the winter start to quicken or start to um, become conceived or like move towards the life that's going to burst forth when we get to the spring equinox and it's Aries season. And so there's this idea of maybe seeding or planting something that is controversial or outside or innovative but then being able to stick with it and be persistent until that seed becomes more accepted or more widespread Mm -hmm. yeah i think something about particularly in business if you're gonna be like to be on the cutting edge or just ahead of it then you have to be outside of the norm if everybody's doing it, you're not finding something innovative and, and new and futuristic in that base. 
And so it makes sense that, you know, Steve Jobs and folks like that would be operating so far afield while they're doing the long Saturnian work of creating the thing. Um, but if they've done their job correctly, then the technology saves you so much time or improve makes it so that you feel you're getting that much more value out of your time. Then everyone's going to adopt that, of course, because that is the one thing that everybody does share in common is recognizing uh, my time will come to an end. I don't know how much of it I have. I want to enjoy as much of it as possible. Um, but then in terms of the social norm qualities, I was thinking about, um, about my, my own experience with queer activism and, you know, looking back now, actually 20 years and a bit more even, um, thinking back to when we were as young queer activists adopting words like queer and then having our elders be like, why are you using this word? That's a horrible word. People only, bad things happened when people said that word in your presence. Why would you people do this? Um, you young children, you should listen to your elders. Um, and now, now, thinking back from the perspective of my like 13, 14, 15 year old self, well, the word queer seems to be pretty well normalized. And so at one point, folks were standing outside of the norm saying, hey, we're outside the norm. We're not inside the group. And all of all of us here would like in, please. And then eventually, once everybody gets in, then you like redraw the parameters of who's in, who's out, what's the norm. Um, and so I think the Leo side being the like shining forth of the social norm, but it really being Aquarius that's defining and holding and like holding the structure of that norm itself. That makes sense. Like the social institutions. Maybe mm. part of it, part of the Saturn component is, you know, Saturn both has those rings, but also Saturn is the furthest visible planet. So maybe part of the archetype is exploring what the boundaries are and what the boundaries on the outer limits of society are and then and pushing those boundaries and finding out that those boundaries can be pushed a little further than people thought up to that point. Mm -hmm. Oh, I love that. Yeah, like Saturn as a Capricorn ruler being about physical boundary and like limitation of material earth-based resource and then Saturn as Aquarius's ruler being about social boundary and being at the edge of that or the outskirts of the social norm or the social boundary. And I do think that Aquarius has a propensity to be more invested in pushing at the boundaries of um, different heteronormative experiences or, you know, ways of people relating to one another, ways of relating to our own bodies. And that's where some of the progressiveness of it can come from as well. Yeah, so. that's a really good point. And, and just pushing against that, which is normative in general, might be part of the, the archetype for Aquarius as a major recurring phenomenon. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Or yeah, even I, like, yeah, go ahead, Bear. I was just going to say, I, I think a lot about Saturn as holding these, these two different perspectives, and maybe it is the, the Capricorn, Capricorn Aquarius, you know, Capricorn so close to the fall, to looking back into the past, but Aquarius is like, we're halfway through, we got to look forward towards the future. But Saturn has both the like, here's the foundation, here's the wall set in stone, but also the qualities of breaking. Like anytime I think about, oh, broken mm. bone, what's Saturn doing? Partly because of the bones, but also because of the, the breaking. It feels like whether it's making the bond as permanent as possible or breaking the bond forever and ever, like that's a Saturn thing. And so 
it feels like that shows up both with the way we're connected to social institutions or reify them and also the way that we build them or or try to direct them for the sake of the future I love that. Yeah, Saturn as breaking in its different forms in these signs. And it makes me think about um, the different correlation to family that Capricorn, excuse me, Capricorn and Aquarius both have as well. Like Capricorn family is about legacy. It is about our physical bones and our DNA. Like DNA is quite literally a ladder, which is like my favorite image for Capricorn. But Aquarius is about chosen family, I think, and about the ways that we sometimes break from the tradition or the legacy of DNA bone-oriented family to have some kind of other or outside or non-normative experience of family and sense of belonging and connection. Mm, yes, yes, yes. Uh, it made me think about different ways of using the word ancestor. And I've, I've thought about Saturn related to ancestor, ancestry and ancestors for a really long time. Um, and one of those things I was thinking is like in Capricorn, it's like, I am my ancestors' wildest prayers manifest. Here I am. Their bones are now my bones. And then in Aquarius, we're like, holy cow, I'm, I'm somebody's future ancestor. I'm a future somebody's ancestor right now. And it's about that, like, oh, what does it look like to act, to to be a good future ancestor in this very moment, each moment? Oh, yeah, so true. And the various forms that we become future ancestors, whether that's through like actual children and legacy and created family, or whether it's like the transition from Aquarius to Pisces, like at some point my body will be the ancestor of the ocean like when mm. i am dead and my body returns to the earth and mm -hmm. becomes the ancestor of some kind of organic matter that is turned into something else mm -hmm. or the way like vedius valens is the ancestor of a lot of people who are present now or listening to this podcast in the future mm. yes <laughs> astrology um, daddy yes Valens himself, I believe, had some Aquarius stuff. Uh, he mm -hmm. was a sun and, at least tropically, Mercury and Aquarius, actually. Oh, wow. That makes so much sense. <laughs> yeah. Um, and speaking, you mentioned non-normative or, or pushing against things that are normative. And it made me think of one of my favorite comedians who... I often associate in like 1962, there was this huge pileup of planets in Aquarius. Mm -hmm. And um, like it was kind of like notable at the time because there was different, like some people saying it was going to be like the end of the world, or there, there was kind of like a many fiascos surrounding that of not great predictions being made by often like not necessarily astrologers. But, anyways, like one of the people that was born. Under that huge Aquarius stellium in, in February of 1962 was Eddie Izzard. Mm. Um, and they, she has Virgo rising with Mercury in Aquarius, as well as Mars, Saturn, South Node, Sun, Jupiter, and Venus, all in Aquarius in the sixth whole sign house. Um, and I just think about her first major special that was huge in 1999, Dressed to Kill. Yes. One of the things 
um, focusing on that was transgressing sometimes gender norms at the time, which was for the time for like 1999 was really, really edgy. I, I feel like back then and nowadays, while it's not so much, you know, so many years later, um, understanding it at the time for what it was, I think really stands out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I first came out in my multi-part coming out process um in 2000 and so as a young queer person that like eddie that dress to kill was was one of the few things that was out there and like real media not some niche thing that you see in the gay and lesbian history society um that even touched on talking about gender in any kind of transgressive way um or queerness in a broader way even um, and it, it touches on some stuff that I don't, I don't know that we can really dwell upon in this episode, but there is definitely, um, Dr. Ali Alomi has talked, talked a bit about the kind of flattening of the gender nuances related to Saturn specifically, um, in the Arabic that happened in the Latin translation process. And so there's some, some, <clears throat> Ali's got some very interesting thoughts on Saturn. And even thinking about Mercury as the planet that is common or the planet that is um, neither, neither masculine nor feminine, um, I think you know, I often call Mercury the non-binary planet. And so seeing both Mercury and Saturn there together and holding different types of important roles um, in that chart and also the Saturn placement in the sixth, there's a few different things there that I see as being like, oh yes, the Aquarius and the Mercury and the Saturn all coming together. Um, in a way that really makes sense, but that was just so groundbreaking and radical. And I can imagine from the perspective of somebody who was maybe not yet born in 1999 or the early thousands, if they were to watch Dress to Kill, they might just cringe fest through the whole thing and not see it as being antiquative, antiquated or backwards in some way. But that's like only from this like backwards looking perspective. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and in the context of when it was shared, um, it, it was groundbreaking. And also there's that sense that the sixth house can be a place of activism as well, because it's a service that is given to others. Um, and so this expression of queerness as a kind of activism or something that is shared or something that is in service to, I think really like, yeah, speaks to the chart. Yeah, um, and and was very forward thinking in that sense. And I just I keep looking through my different like Aquarius placement charts. Um, another one that came up was um, Karl Marx, who had Aquarius rising, and then the ruler Saturn in the second house of like money and finances, and having this very forward thinking, sort of like idealistic or or utopian sort of ideas about the future and about money and commerce and things like that. That they then tried to, you know, put forward as as a, like a manifesto, um, that that then it ended up influencing a number of people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Karl Marx is a really interesting one. I always think about the you know a specter is haunting Europe, and I'm like, oh yeah, Saturn and Pluto in the second house. You would look at money and capital and be like, ghost haunting, definitely <laughs> ghost haunting afoot. Um, even you know i know in the year ahead forecast you talked a little y'all talked about the <clears throat> saturn moving into pisces and that kind of like concretizing of it's not quite the same tech 
technological progressive social ideas of Aquarius. It's more of the like Jupiterian qualities of Pisces, um, the like spiritual leanings. You know, I think Aquarius itself would be more concerned with the, and you know, Karl Marx is a good example of this, like breaking down the how does it happen, what is actually happening in the cap in the process of of capitalism, but then rooting into the Piscean. Um, more spiritual, transcendent, uh, for lack of a better word, kind of impulse rather than focusing on the, and the most efficient use of time in the future would be to do X, Y, Z. I think that if he had Saturn and Aquarius, it might've looked more like that. Mm. Yeah. I think it's a great example as well, because we can see how the concept of socialism is something that is for the people and is about equity and having space for everyone and for the for the whole collective and this sense of um like equality between individuals but then in practice socialism can actually become dehumanizing in different ways because it doesn't account for the uniqueness of individuals and i think this is one of the things that aquarius has to navigate is like this fixed ideal that is meant to be for the people or for the collective but if it becomes too fixed or if it has the rigidity that saturn takes on sometimes um there's a way in which we are striving to create monocultures rather than actually allowing and embracing the uniqueness of individuals and so i often think about the dichotomy between like the rigid fixed ideal of something that creates monoculture or ecosystem diversity, where in an ecosystem, everything has its specific place and purpose, but all of those things are completely different from one another. And if we like remove the algae from a pond, it's going to affect the whole rest of that ecosystem. And so I think that like the, there's a sense in which ecosystems are maybe like a better fixity, <laughs> like better ideal than something that creates sameness. And, and that's maybe where socialism has shortcomings as well. Yeah, there's a similar issue. We talked, I sort of mentioned in passing like stoicism earlier, which is like one of those philosophies that like sounds really good on paper and that you can take a lot of really great things from, but it may not necessarily be appropriate for everybody. Um, this idea that you, that you adopt a philosophy that everything is predetermined and, and that the best what you can do is even if you can't control all of your external circumstances what you can control is your mindset and that you should constantly practice to be detached from things to a certain extent and neither rejoice excessively in the case of good things in your life but and nor become super depressed in the case of bad things but instead to try to maintain like an equilibrium at all times and there's some things about that uh, ideal that they're very very idealistic and, and and sound good and that you can take good things from, but ultimately it may be hard for like everybody to implement, or may may not even be a, appropriate for everybody to try to implement. It may be detrimental to some people if it goes sort of contrary to the way that they could best live their life in a way that's authentic to them. So maybe that's a recurring theme about like the idealism of like a perfect intellectual philosophy. Um, or or way of life, but something that may be um, the attempt to to want everybody to adapt to the same thing or to have an ideal forced on everybody sometimes coming up short. 
Mm-hmm. It makes me think about some of the parallels between Stoicism and Buddhism. Um, you know, like this one part of Marcus Aurelius that kind of stuck out to me where he's talking about like his kids and being like, yeah, they could die and you should, you should be able to like, look at that and not be so, not be so like overwhelmed by the reality that your kid could be dead tomorrow. And it was like, damn dude, that's really, it's a very intense, um, application of recognizing that everything is impermanent, I think would be the Buddhist way of saying the same thing. Um, at least as I understand and based on my own practice and experience. And so thinking about that, like, um, you know, even the Dalai Lama made some comment about uh, speaking at Stanford. He was talking about equanimity, and he said, yes, backstage they had a cheese cheese platter, and I ate it, and I realized that I really would have preferred chocolate cake. And that that's not a particularly great, like, example of equanimity that, you know, I should be manifest i should be an an example of the perfect type of equanimity where i would be equally happy with like dog poop or chocolate cake or cheese makes no difference obviously i'm paraphrasing um and so thinking about a couple different ways whether it's that sort of thing like oh well your you know sensations are just sensations and you're not your body anyways and so you're you know you're excruciating nerve pain you should just like tough it out not a big deal ignore it um, you could disassociate away or even thinking about things like with time, you know, oh, let's look forward seven generations. But there's a lot of research that suggests that human psyche isn't really capable of thinking that far ahead. Or like we were talking about with certain types of, um, you know, scientific experiments or um, <clears throat> certain fields of science. We we know scientifically that we don't have the like the bandwidth, whether in our visual visual sensory equipment or hearing sensory equipment to even perceive all of sound or see all of light um and so there's this kind of like wanting to be able to act as though we had full and complete perfect perception of everything even though we clearly don't or wanting to act in a way where we can you know chris think earlier you said something about like almost being like a time traveler in the way that we influence the future but we also know that we can barely even think far enough in the future to do that even if it were possible um, and I think it's like Saturn doesn't resolve the paradox. It's it's over there in Pisces that we we do that work. I think mm-hmm. it's really the notion of non-attachment, which is both an Aquarian blessing and a curse. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, it makes me think about the story you were telling earlier, Bear, about the neuroscientist who was having a stroke, mm-hmm. and then like monitoring like the actual neurological responses happening during the stroke and having this non-attached curious experience about what's happening rather than necessarily being immersed in the experience itself which is more of a piscean theme to be fully immersed in something and not separated from it Mm -hmm. yeah i'm remembering a little bit more of what she talked about and it was like one side of her brain in particular was shut down for some time or was impacted and in the ted talk she recounts basically like that process taking away part of what one would typically ascribe regular human consciousness and so kind of being removed from the rational linear language bound part of being a person and but as a scientist being aware that that was happening and so being like struck with oh this is me and my animal body this is what my animal body normally would be experiencing. So I think there's something there about like understanding that on the the edge of what Aquarius can contain rationally is 
something that is entirely other than ourselves, but also part of us. Like it puts us into that detriment of the sun, opposite Leo, but also all of Saturn stuff being opposite the lights in, in general. And to, like stays dark to us, but we know it's there. Just like death, like we can't ever really talk about it, but we're often always talking about it. That makes me think of so many things. <laughs> One of them being this sense that um, Aquarius is somehow beyond our animal nature. Like I think it's where human beings feel that we are different or other from other kinds of animals or other kinds of life forms or being somehow beyond it. Mm. And it also makes me think about spiders and spider webs which i've been thinking about a lot in relationship to aquarius lately and like reading about how spiders actually have consciousness in their webs and that they project thought and memory into the the physical webs that they create and this feels like a very aquarian concept to me and what you were saying really made me think of that because there's a sense of like projecting our consciousness into other or like beyond our physical body um but something that is also like interconnected with space um around us as well mm. that's so interesting that the, the immediately what immediately came to mind was my grandmother telling me about <clears throat> an indigenous people's story and of course i can't remember who she was even saying it maybe she didn't even say she just said native people my native grandmother native people believe that that grandmother spider her story her web spins stories and i know that there are some some different groups um on the african continent who would have the similar type of view looking at anansi and just thinking about like oh the spider web is the the physical container of of memory that's what stories are is is uh, like is an airy transmission of emotional memory like we don't unless we have a feeling attached to an event we are very unlikely to remember it um so that's interesting it, you know, it feels like a pulling together of some things or maybe pointing to the the metaphor of aquarius as the water bearer like aquarius isn't the water that's being born aquarius is the thing that allows one to carry the water and then dispense it water being the emotions there so like the spider web is a physical vessel for transmitting stories and the emotion that's contained in them mm, i love that or like we might be the individual spiders at the center of the web but we are connected to and creators of something that is much more vast and much more broad than that that also contains our stories and our memories and I love the image of story and memory being something that extends into physical space around us, like beyond our individual cells, selves and cells. <laughs> like actually makes me think about um atoms and how the electrons are like physically so far apart from the nucleus of the atom. And I always wondered about that, like as a younger person in a science class, like how does that work is that telling us that there's actual energy or something that we're connected to that extends well beyond the space of the nucleus or the center of that thing yeah it's like the way that spiders webs you know like i i always wondered and as a kid i imagined that spiders would like climb down a tree and across to another tree and then back up the tree dragging their web behind them and it's clearly not what's happening 
Um, apparently, they use the wind to carry their little tiny bodies from one place to another, and that's how they <clears throat> they are at least like the big orb weavers and stuff. That's how they're able to make these really epic webs. Um, yeah, it's something something in there about about the like that physical manifestation that creates 3D connection. Um, uh, that itself is dew catching kind of a weird image but i'm thinking about like looking at a spider web and it's like it's almost not there and it's exists suspended in the air and what does it do it catches dew d-e-w dew wet wet moisture right um and aquarius is a damp sign or a dew producing sign i think i read in one of the the ancient texts as well and so if the if like aquarius is you know, has Saturn as a ruler that's a dry, cold planet, and so we wouldn't think of it being particularly concerned with emotions or connectivity, but it's just material enough, just con- just capable enough of collecting moisture that it ends up having those those relational, um, like the the temperament, tem- temperamental wetness and moisture, as I understand it, meaning like things that can collect, and that's what makes the makes the water signs relational and emotional. I understand correctly. Wow, that's so beautiful. It's um like the first beginning of something condensing into form that leads us back into Pisces, like having this network that is created from wind, which is literally a thing of the air <laughs> that allows us to condense something enough into form that then we are led into more watery spaces or into more like physical experiences. Mm. Yeah. Something there about like the whole, the whole hydrological cycle. If we just think about oceans or rivers or rain, then it's easy to forget the air is part of it and that like condensation, that whole thing. And even just thinking about the, the, the different elements, um, air being upward moving and rising rapidly which is in contrast to water which is and water and earth which are downward trending um yeah it's like the water moves up into the air uh, and but that oh, condensation yeah. process and i know some there's some connections between aquarius and rain as the like the rain bearing sign i think is part of part of in the tradition where we get the water bearing signification uh, more imagery yeah, we should actually mention that. So Aquarius is <laughs> traditionally called the the water bearer, which means like the water carrier. And the traditional symbols associated with it are a person that's holding like a, a vase that's full of water and that there's water like pouring out of it. And sometimes people confuse that and they think that Aquarius is a water sign, but it's actually an air sign, um, even though it's called the water bearer and it has to do with that that concept of like carrying the water or transporting or transmitting something that's valuable which is water but not necessarily being water itself Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah and and like bear was saying like it was associated with like a a time where when aquarius was rising at this time of the year then it was signaled to bring the rainy season and so it was like this bearing of water but not being of the water itself. And I, I think also Saturn is um, connected to water trades as well, which feels very much like 
a water bearer kind of experience, like trades that take place because there is water and in proximity to the water, but are not like of the water themselves. It's more about the transmission of resources and materials through water. Mm -hmm. I've been dwelling on that point with Saturn a lot with my clients recently and kind of saying, okay, well, it's interesting. Saturn's associated with things like irrigation canals and also with minerals under the earth before Pluto came and, and co-opted that job. And said, well, like that's, you know, water, you know, Saturn, that's already strange. Minerals, what, what do these have in common? Those were things you would need if you were going to be wealthy. If you don't have irrigation canals in a desert place that's agrarian based, you, then you don't have food, you don't have sovereignty, you don't have, you don't have a legacy to hand down, you don't have anything. Um, and so I think there's a very interesting connection with Aquarius specifically is the ability to harness, the ability to contain all of those things that Capricorn is concerned with conserving. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, and that sense of like um, wealth or abundance being something that can come through our proximity to water or through our proximity to Capricorn-type resources like mineral mm -hmm. and rich soil and all, the, all of these things. And um, it makes me think of like some of the distortions of uh, indigenous communities that have happened in Canada specifically where um, you know, we have the Great Lakes here. And so there is this inherent access to fresh water. And then um, on a lot of the rivers and on the coast, these access accesses to different waterways that were originally um, home to indigenous communities and then co-opted by settlers once they arrived and realized like the sort of inherent value of being in proximity to water or like the wealth that could be accessed through the proximity to water. Yeah, absolutely. Um, reminds, reminds me of how like a lot of um, major civilizations around the world developed in places where they had a proximity to like a major river or to water. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Egypt, Mesopotamia, uh, in China, mm -hmm. in India, like the Indus Valley civilization, like all over the world. All along the Mekong, uh, my people were named after the river that were near, even though we weren't even fixed permanent settlement type dwelling having people. Um, and I think even today, something like 80% of the world's population lives um, <clears throat> very adjacent to either the ocean um, or, or a major riverway. It's like one of the core fundamental parts of, of human civilization. Um, and even thinking about the you know shipping trade irrigation canals are things that take a very long amount of time to to complete and they would require having spent a lot of time listening to your elders about the value of spending this much time noticing weather phenomena so that you actually can successfully plan a sea voyage um so there's like a lot of different saturn things that show up there i think if we keep digging even a little bit deeper yeah that's going to be one of our most core things maybe for this episode but just the idea of like human major human civilizations really happening and expanding around water or or near water and and some of the deeper reasons for that not just as a source of like sustenance with like water but also um also a, a means of 
uh, transporting things and moving things. And even today, like the majority, even though we have airplanes and stuff, the majority of like international trade of good goods happens through like huge ships that like literally transport stuff from like one continent to another. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Makes me right. realize for the first time that both of Saturn's signs are more concerned with water than they seem at first. You know, Capricorn, the, the sea goat, and then Aquarius, the air sign that is busy pouring out water. Mm. Yeah, good point. Yeah, it's funny because, like, um, in terms of personality expression, Saturnian signs might resist watery expression or watery nature, but then make very good use of it at the same time. Like, it's like, I don't want to be of that, but I want to um, use that in the most efficient way possible. Mm-hmm. All right, we're back from a break. Why don't we transition at this point into talking about some example charts? Um, I did a search through some of my files just for like people with Aquarian placements. Uh, one of the classic ones that's often mentioned of a Mercury in Aquarius is um, Martin Luther King Jr., who had potentially Taurus rising. He was said to be born around noon, which, if that's correct, put Mercury in at 11 degrees of Aquarius in his 10th whole sign house. And, um, you know, we were talking earlier about that, that forward looking or forward thinking component. And people often cite his I have a dream speech as like one of the, the most significant speeches uh, in American history. Um, and that might be a good example, again, of that forward thinking component of it's like he wasn't talking about what things are right now, but instead he was talking about this like idealized state in the future where he hoped that we would get there someday, even if he himself would never see that. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's interesting too, like the, the I have a dream speech kind of coming after the letters from a Birmingham jail. And I, I think about the, that Aquarius nature showing up in the um, something that Valens actually says about Aquarius um, betraying reputation and the truth and thinking about the letters to Birmingham jail you know Dr. King very very astutely and succinctly calls out some of the um, what about ism is something is one way that people call it um, but the the resistance to progress that comes in the form of uh, it's not quite the right time, like oh that's too fast. Maybe we should do it this other way. And so I think, mm. particularly thinking about his image, and um, you know, I think we could also look at his chart relative to the U.S. chart and see some interesting things. But thinking about those two different, you know, letters from a Birmingham jail, and I have a dream speech, both being examples of him looking forward at that place of potential utopian perfect progress being achieved and looking and saying like yes i still have the optimism i'm still committed to the dream and also here are all of the current present impediments to that dream coming into being mm, yeah. yeah and also both the the letters as well as the public speaking being mercurial experiences up there in the 10th house like that publishing of letters or the sense of public speaking to a larger collective dream feel really apt as well mm-hmm. yeah for sure um let's see other aquarius placements i've got in my files robert zoller who was uh 
an early pioneer of traditional astrology, and he was really one of the first astrologers in like the late 20th century where he published um, a book on the Arabic parts or the lots in 1980 called The Lost Key to Prediction, um, the Arabic parts in astrology or something like that. And he had Pisces rising with the sun, Mercury, and Mars in Aquarius in the 12th house, as well as the traditional ruler of the ascendant Jupiter in Scorpio in the ninth whole sign house. And um, he you know, had a, you know, interestingly, he had a vision of the future and the future of astrology that involved looking back into the past. And he was one of the first people that really championed that idea that we should go back and, and translate and recover a lot of these old sources from ancient astrology, saying that they, was, they were still useful and relevant. And one of the things he would say, I mean, he would say sometimes, is, he would say like the old ways are the good ways. And sometimes there's a certain way in which that can be, you know, a good thing or a positive thing. There's another way in which that can lead to a sort of fundamentalism, which can be not as good if, if somebody's like only the old ways or the good ways. But it's interesting how you have that dynamic sometimes of, you know, past and future and them getting mixed up or intertwined in different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So that's, that's one of my other, other Aquarius examples. The really interesting one too, and with his chart having that mutual exchange of domicile and triplicity, especially thinking about Saturn as the triplicity lord of the sect like there, that back and forth just really hammering down both of the, like, I think about, I think like a lot of younger astrologers who didn't, who didn't have the chance to interact directly with um, Project Hindsight. Like the Robs are like these, you know, very much like Superman, these like solar figures that are like ar- archetypally represent that movement. Um, mm-hmm. So, something about that Sun Saturn opposition being so tight and going back and forth, being like, and really holding down that ancestral figurehead kind of role, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, um, now that yeah. I think about it, Saturn was actually going through Aquarius during that time frame of like the founding of Project Hindsight and their initial like flurry of activity and where they were all talking about that as like their main, you know, um the idea to excite the astrological community was that the future of astrology involved looking back into the past. Oh yeah. And that opposition and mutual reception between the sun and Saturn, like you're saying, Bear, it's like, well, we need to respect the tradition, but also in a way that is progressing our tradition forward or allowing us to look to the future of the tradition and that kind of supportive exchange between Saturn and the sun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, all right, other people. Um, this one's kind of a goofy one, but Jim Carrey has Aquarius stellium with. Uh, potentially Scorpio rising, mm-hmm. Saturn, Jupiter, Mercury in the south node in Aquarius. And I think, I think that's another one where it was like right around the time his career really took off was um, around the time of Saturn in Aquarius or pretty close to it, I believe, um, give or take. Mm-hmm. And um, this is funny because he had kind of like a wacky, kind of like zany comedy, comedy style that was like really unique and kind of like odd at the time in the like early to mid 90s i was reading this thing recently about one of his co-stars um was tommy lee jones and tommy lee jones was like a 
more strict like traditional actor and that he really like did not jive with jim carrey's style at all and told him once like i do not condone your buffoonery or something like that and really funny um you know thinking about that in that context a little hard because it's you know jim carrey's become less prominent i think as an actor or a comedian but it's again one of those things where if you're around at the time and you realized how he stood out by being kind of odd or kind of weird in a sense or going against the grain it sort of makes sense even though later those things which were odd at the time became sort of commonplace yeah i mean even i don't know if he did anything prominent prior to his role on in living color and probably a lot of people in the in your audience may not know about a living color it was basically like kind of like mad tv or snl uh recurring skit comedy show um mm-hmm. And the Wayans family are a huge percentage of the various cast members, um, but predominantly, almost exclusively black cast. And so Jim Carrey was like the white guy, the odd white guy out. And so he had this role that was literally being the odd one out. Um, and I think that was his first really big prominent, um, prominent screen time work. Mm, that's such a great point. Yeah. And also this notion that clowns are saturnian characters yeah. <laughs> and like being called a buffoon is a very aquarian kind of experience somehow it's like um like the othering of clowns even <laughs> um oh, and yeah. the truman show feels like a very aquarian movie to me because it's similar to what we were talking about with the matrix has this sense of um altered reality or something that tries to go outside our subjective experience of reality into some kind of larger more uh big picture understanding of it mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and even like a uh, eternal sunshine of the spotless mind has that too with like the memory story um time qualities in particular mm-hmm. yeah yeah for sure uh, other Aquarius stellium I've used as exam- in example charts a lot that Lisa Scheim originally showed me was Judy Bloom, who had to, she has uh, Libra rising with Venus, the Sun, Jupiter, and Mercury in Aquarius all in the fifth whole sign house. She had two children and she wanted to like write children's stories for them while they were growing up. So she did. And later she ended up publishing them. And eventually she ended up becoming like a prolific, award-winning children's book author um, who has written just a ton of books and is there eventually like influenced a lot of children as a result of that through her writings. Wow, that's so perfect. Like both the fifth house as well as the presence of Jupiter there as the ruler of children and mm-hmm. conjunct Mercury um, writing about children. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty good. And then let's see, one last one that's I think is just the contrast is interesting with Judy Bloom because it's almost a similar setup, but a different manifestation and obviously not the exact same one. But I saw Alice Sparkly Cat use this chart example of Thomas Beattie, who has Libra rising and the sun and Venus and Mercury and Jupiter in the fifth whole sign house. and they were on um, Wikipedia. The description is assigned female at birth. BD came out as a trans man in early 1997. BD had gender reassignment surgery in March 2002 and became known as quote unquote the pregnant man 
after he became pregnant through artificial insemination in 2007. Um, BD chose to be pregnant because his wife, Nancy, was infertile, doing so with donated sperm. So I think that's kind of interesting, partially also because of the um, technological component there when it comes to you know, conceiving and having a child and everything else and some things that were you know, very advanced for the time. Again, that, that theme of like, kind of like forward thinking in some sense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then Jupiter's presence in the fifth there with that stellium as well, like part of the, the progress um, revolves around children and having children as well. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So those are some of my examples. The only other one that I had was um, Richard Tarnas, who was born with Gemini rising and Mercury, Venus, Jupiter, and the degree of the midheaven all in the ninth whole sign house. And he was uh, or is sort of like a college professor who wrote um, a book about the history of and development of Western thought that was published in the early 90s that became um, wildly successful and, and became like assigned as a college textbook in many college courses. Um, but it turned out that that was just a sort of footnote or like a precursor to a, a more important book that he was working on about astrology that he ended up publishing in, I think, 2004, 2005 called mm -hmm. uh, Cosmos and Psyche, in which he kind of like made the case for astrology and demonstrated it working throughout history and also correlating with some major um, developments in, in thought and culture and other things like that through mundane and natal astrology. So there's this kind of like forward thinking, but also unique or kind of odd from the perspective of like the established academic or scientific community that he was kind of part of, um, but doing something that would set him apart as a sort of like innovation or a forward thinking type of thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so. I love that. And then Mercury chart ruler in the ninth as part of that stellium, like writing about astrology. Yeah, writing and publishing and also just the immense amount of like research and background learning and understanding um, that sort of goes into that and, and being able to talk about different philosophers and different thinkers down through history and, and everything else. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah so those are some of my examples do either of you have any examples that you wanted to share i'm super stoked about uh guy fieri's chart um folks that aren't familiar with him let's see here i think i shared the link to that outline with you um what's the what's the data pull that up real quick uh january 22nd 1968 8 columbus ohio and that's double a data um a happy birthday guy if you're into astrology um i i saw this in a in a response to your tweet yesterday about you know <clears throat> what do you think of when you think of aquarius and i immediately was like yes this is one of this is just such a great aquarius example because is um, this the correct, correct chart yes that looks correct Okay, um, so it's for the audio listeners, it's Aquarius rising with Mercury and the sun in Aquarius. Mm -hmm. Cool. Um, and just thinking about his chart and, you know, 
the his work with diners, drive-ins, and dives, um, kind of just being a good example of several different Aquarius qualities. The idea that Aquarius is really concerned with the underdog um, being one that you can see in his choice of restaurants. Um, so diners, drive-ins, and dives, or triple D. Um, it's the show where he famously said, you know, like, take me to Flavortown. And that's why he's the mayor of Flavortown. But he goes <laughs> into these restaurants that are underdog restaurants. They're not nice, fancy Michelin starred, zagat rated places. So, like, as someone who's worked in the restaurant industry, um, I know that even though we all clown on him a little bit and, and make jokes at his expense, he, um, he's kind of famous for not caring and understanding that what he does by featuring these small local restaurants is just like tremendous service. Um, I actually, when I was in AmeriCorps, worked with some kids and one of their parents had a restaurant that was featured on that show and their business was steady and stable in a way that most restaurants really never get to experience. Um, and so it's easy to look at what he's doing as just being this kind of like clownish character who's talking about food. Um, but he's actually really deliberately utilizing that clown role character that he plays to do good work and he like isn't you know isn't making a big show of it being that work he's just like letting the work speak for itself um and kind of utilizing what at the time was a, a relatively new new way or a new approach of potentially doing that food network really wasn't showing shows like that at the time and even back then food network wasn't um was kind of recently or was freshly expanding into being on regular cable and more easily accessible for folks to encounter. That's so perfect. Like that, that sense about like using his clown nature, but also like all of those placements in the first house, like he himself is personally going to the fringes or going to the outskirts of mm -hmm. um, these more accepted spaces within food culture and like his personal journey becomes the edge or becomes the progress that's happening there yeah yeah and even the whole like you know point of the show is to find these like hidden gems and like the best food these little tucked away secrets secrets are another is another good saturn signification um that isn't often talked about a secret saturn signification and so you kind of like put those things together it's um, just a really fun example. And I think it also really highlights that um, that ability to just kind of move in and out of every different type of group. Um, you know, that show travels all over the country, lots of different types of regional cuisine. And you can see that his genuine curiosity, his mercurial translation interpreter, um, that quality just lets him enter into almost any type of like spacer. Um, yeah, I just think that's a really fun example. And uh, a really good, like, lighthearted example, since some Aquarius examples can go towards more the dark side of Saturn. Yeah. Well, and it's also he's just not, he's like not the common food uh, chef kind of host up to that point on like a show like that. Like, usually it would be a different character. And there was something about his uniqueness and the way that he stood out, which um, set him apart from other people other food hosts basically at, on television at that point mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. he's no nigella <laughs> right <laughs> um that actually brings up i just like happened to, i was just looking for other like i was looking for venus in aquarius examples and a couple of artists came up um one of them is yoko ono which i forgot about who has libra rising and venus 
in Aquarius conjunct Saturn in Aquarius along with the Sun in the fifth whole sign house. Um, and she's famously an artist, but does very like avant-garde art that sometimes like some people find like off-putting or 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 um, kind of edgy. Um, how would you describe that, or how would you two can you describe that better than I can? Yeah, I mean, I I love that the chart ruler in the fifth conjunct Saturn is like creating depressing art sometimes, <laughs> and, right? Like it it is highly innovative and also makes me think about what Bear was saying earlier that Saturn breaks things and like as much as people appreciated or hated her art people also thought of her as the woman who broke up the Beatles. Like there was a sense that she was like a breaking force in something, but that was also an inherently creative act for her, something that fueled a lot of her own creative work. So I think that really fits. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know if this band has anything to do with Aquarius, but the song lyric popped into my head about like mild flame broke the 12 bar blues just to prove he could. And that's what popped into my head when you asked about, um, that avant-garde quality, Chris, I think, um, that Saturnian quality of like breaking the artistic norms, breaking the mold of what defines a certain type of art as being that type of art, like, um, mm. you know, putting a, a urinal in the middle of an empty room, that's art, if you say that it's art, um, or, and, and, or, or, and also the certain type of like, I think, uh, Aaron, earlier you talked about the like nihilistic pessimistic possibilities with saturn i think the other side of that can show up as absurdism like if you're Mm. not like crying at the void that you just stared into or the abyss that you just like stared in the face of then maybe you're laughing in the face of the abyss Mm. so i think that like avant-garde art absurdity breaking social norms breaking artistic norms and and rejecting sometimes the premise of what it means to be an artist and saying like you know, you you guys say that this is what an artist is, or this is what you have to do. But this is, to me, this is art, and and rejecting that concept, and then going a different route, going your own way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was going to say I, I would have to research this to see if it tracks, but I'm just thinking about the early '60s and like how closely that does coincide or doesn't coincide with the British invasion and kind of what was previously looked at as R&B or country and Western, depending on the race of the artist, suddenly became rock and roll and like this whole new thing was birthed. I wonder if there's a correlation there um, in terms of like breaking breaking the, the color barrier back then, and both with, uh, with respect to culture and art um, showing up during that like really big Aquarius stellium time in, in the early 60s. Mm. I mean, I know Chuck Berry, for example, had a Jupiter, Jupiter in Aquarius, which is kind of interesting in terms of music, but yeah, and, and rock and roll in particular, but I'm sure there's a lot of other musicians we could look into. Another artist that somebody mentioned on Twitter today when I put a poll out was um, Jackson Pollock, although I don't have a birth time, I don't think they had, he had the sun in Aquarius. Um, and yeah, Sun in Aquarius, and his painting style was really avant-garde and different for the time, where it's like just taking different um, paints or different splashes of paint that you splash or let drip onto a canvas, 
Um, Wikipedia says that he was an American painter and a major figure in the abstract expressionist movement. He was widely noticed for his drip technique of pouring or splashing liquid household paint onto a horizontal surface, enabling him to view and paint his canvases from all angles. Um, yeah, and just these really abstract paintings that initially were way different than anything anybody else was doing traditionally, but then became like wildly popular. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that that sense of like experiencing art through the avant-garde, which I I think is there for like most Aquarian musicians and artists, like. Mozart comes to mind, as well as Etta James, and I think they expressed their Aquarian natures in very different ways, but both had this way of using art as a very um, progressive, boundary-pushing kind of expression. Yeah, I just googled avant-garde for the sake of a definition, and I really like this definition. It says, in the arts and in literature, the term avant-garde identifies a genre of art an experimental work of art and the experimental artist who created the artwork, which usually is aesthetically innovative while initially being ideologically unacceptable to the artistic establishment of the time. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting and really you know, brings us way right back to some core things that we've been talking about when it comes to Aquarius. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that quality of like breaking the mold, breaking the social norms, rejecting the, 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 the art house institutions. I think there's, I wish I had an art history background because I think there are some notable examples of full artistic movements that were very self-consciously rejecting um, in France. That'll come to me when we're done recording, I'm sure. Um, <clears throat> rejecting the entire like structure um, and social institution related to art in their time period. Um, and then even, I think, avant-garde, if, like, etymologically ends up being about, like, leading, literally leading the advancement or leading a group, um, and that quality of it being the rejection that leads something, even thinking about some of the, like, mythology related to Kronos, Saturn is Kronos, um, and the, the Hellenistic tradition all kind of, like, ties into that. Yeah, well, it really yeah. comes down to those phrases being ideologically unacceptable to the artistic establishment of the time. So there's like the ideas of ideology, of collective social norms, of what is thought to be permissible or not permissible, as well as a temporal component of like at one time in the present, and sometimes that being an Aquarius thing, being out of time being the person who is not in step with their time because they are almost like living in the future or they're living in some um, age that they can see and they experience, but they are kind of weird or, or abnormal in their own time in the present because they're already living at some anticipated time in the future. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I feel like those are some of the themes that get maybe misinterpreted or sometimes just interpreted as uranian themes like through the modern interpretation of uranus as the ruler of aquarius but i i do think about like you just mentioned bear the um mythology of chronos and i think that's where a lot of those themes come from because 
when Kronos was born, he was banished to Tartarus, which is like a place outside of regular Earth experience. Like it's mm-hmm. beyond warmth and light. And so there is this sense of um, being othered or banished or sent away from the hearth or the place of warmth and light that most people might want to grow up with. Um, And then having the identity form in this place of othering or in this place of banishment. Yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. Did you have something bare? I was just thinking about, um, you know, Jackson Pollock being one of the artists that is often pointed to as like, that's not art, that's just throwing paint on a canvas. Um, and that quality of like, that is a timeless, there's, I don't know quite how to say it. Um, Saturn is both time and timelessness, like the quality of standing outside of something being the only way that you can even identify that there is an in and an out. If you're inside, like if you're a fish in water, you don't know that there's air and water. You have to be neither in the water nor in the air to be able to go look and see their relationship. And that's mm. what Saturn's doing. But that being on the outside, um, being on the outside facilitating this process, um, that something about the Saturnian being not part of your time or rejecting the social norms or the what has come before made me think about even just like little fashion trends and I think people often associate Leo as being like fearlessly themselves. And I'm like, eh, it's probably because Leo co-opted the fashion of some Aquarius person who really didn't quit care. And then they were inspired by their utter lack of caring. And so they adopted that uniform as their, I stand apart too. I'm not part of the crowd because I'm confident. And with Leo, it's a performance, but with Aquarius, it's like, it's actually the real, the real deal, if that makes sense. Oh my gosh, so much. Yeah, <laughs> it just makes me think about how like so many threads, like you're saying, um, one, by the time they appear in the mainstream, have usually come a far way and like a long distance in time from some queer community or some racialized community that was the original expression of that. But then with Leo, we get visibility. And Aquarius is not necessarily a sign that's about visibility. And so there's something that might be seeded or brings me back to this idea of seeding something in Aquarius that on the other side of the zodiac becomes visible or becomes accepted or becomes more of a dominant norm. Mm. Yeah, like rock and roll was super rebellious when it happened. There was like a whole movement amongst the elders to try to suppress that at all costs. Um, and now we look at rock and roll. And when I say rock and roll, I'm, I'm like talking about that, like specifically 50s and 60s and those artists. And today, if you talked about any of the artists who were known as famous rock and roll bands in the 60s, there would be n- nothing even remotely radical or countercultural or standing in opposition. You're like, that is the norm. They're the ones that invented the norm. What are you talking about? It's like that process coming full circle. People seeding a whole new movement, hiding in their garage, rebelling against their parents and what came before them. And then eventually their rebellion becomes the thing that becomes rebelled against, which is the whole Uranus to Kronos to, to Zeus story. Yes. <laughs> so much yes. <laughs> yeah, I'm just looking through charts for other musicians 
Um, <clears throat> David Bowie. David Bowie. Yeah. I can't believe we haven't talked about the Starman or Garth Brooks on the totally opposite direction. <laughs> <laughs> Here is David Bowie's chart. It looks like a rounded 9 a.m. time, but it's supposed to be Aquarius rising. Is that correct? Yeah, I believe so. That's uh, the big, that was the thing that folks were talking about is his Aquarius risingness. So Aquarius rising, Venus somewhere around the midheaven in Sagittarius and Saturn, the moon and Pluto all conjunct in Leo in the seventh house. Mm-hmm. So how, for somebody, let's say a hundred years from now that doesn't know who David Bowie is, <laughs> how do you, how do you expl- explain this example? Well, since Saturn rules the chart, him being that Saturn in Leo, so him being a personification of an identity that stands opposed to mainstream identity, um, and but also this type of mm, having sovereignty with respect to the process of concretizing identity or making identity, like David Bowie is Yes, he's famous for being a musician, but I think more so than anything, he's famous for completely reinventing his persona, his look, his sound, um, <clears throat> time and time again, and being um, being very self conscious about doing that intentionally. Mm. Yeah, and I really think the ascendant speaks to that identity aspect that it was about him personally and. So much of his identity was beyond, you know, at, at the time and context in which he was sharing his music, beyond gender norms, beyond sexual identity norms. And, and so his being or his identity was in some way progressive, but then the way that he was able to share it through his chart ruler um, allowed connection or allowed visibility around that too. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, let's see. I was just looking for other musicians. Sam um, Cooke the- was an Aquarius too, um, and I, I think his music feels very Aquarian to me. So, you know, like singing about freedom and connection, and he's a good example. Bear, earlier you were talking about how like where rock and roll came from is not <laughs> is now, and I feel like. Sam Cooke had the energy of rock and roll. Mm-hmm. Is this correct? Gemini rising, sun in Aquarius? Mm-hmm. And for those that aren't familiar, like how do you explain this example? Uh, or, I think or who Sam, were they? Yeah, Sam Cooke was um, like a fairly progressive musician for his time, but he was really singing about freedom uh liberation human connection love like it was a very like heart-centered um message behind his music um but yeah it kind of had like a rock and roll ethos to it i think in the early Mm -hmm. stages he also died a bit young which is a little bit rock and roll but one of the things i think um I know him for musically and hear other musicians talking about is how his voice sounds like the voice of someone who's lived a lot longer than he actually has. And that like Mercury ruling the chart um, and Saturn Mercury co-presence there in Capricorn feels like somebody like 
he felt both old-timey and classic, even though he was doing something that wasn't classic. And he felt like, like listening to him, you would assume that that's the sound of somebody whose heart got broken 20 years ago and they lived to, to like have a bunch of wisdom, but like, that's not true. Mm-hmm. And that sense that Saturnian people are just old, even when they're like two years old, they yeah. have this like eldership to them from the beginning. Timelessness also. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Garth Brooks has um, A-rated birth data. Yeah, he was one of the other people besides Eddie Izzard that was born on that Aquarius stellium in 62, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah, the 62 stellium. Um, and I was just thinking about how he was the first like country star to do the basically like arena rock and roll show um like prior to that country musicians were were more trying to do grand old opry not like madison square gardens um and definitely not madison square garden the way that like the rolling stones might have done it or you see some footage of like early 90s garth brooks and it looks like you're you could swap out the band and the sound and you like it wouldn't look that different like a Guns N' Roses show or something. And so that was yeah. very <clears throat> a breaking of the establishment norms in terms of like Nashville, Grand Ole Opry country, um, country yeah, institutions. He, he has Gemini rising with Saturn, Mars, Mercury, South Node, Sun, Jupiter, Venus, and the degree of the Midheaven all in Aquarius in the ninth whole sign house. Mm-hmm. Nice. Wow. Um, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say that's a very Aquarian chart, but also the ninth house can be institutional as well. And so his like breaking of the institution makes sense with that stellium being in the ninth. Mm-hmm. And then he went and remade it by like signing an exclusive with Walmart. And um, so now his music is like really hard to get unless you engage the institution. But I think it was kind of economically groundbreaking from an artist's financial bank account perspective but maybe not in other ways necessarily so it's interesting to see that kind of like you choose a path you commit to it quality of aquarius and making a permanent decision like he signed a lifetime deal so even if he later regretted having that exclusive it's a lifetime exclusive Mm, or that sense that aquarians break institutions but then just form their own institutions in the process so mm-hmm. it becomes very cyclical right. yeah and it reminds me actually of another of another aquarius stellium might be used as a musician that's an example to some extent of that which is um dr dre who has mm-hmm. gemini rising and the sun and mercury venus and the degree of the midheaven in the ninth whole sign house with the moon in libra and both some of the um you know being in the early stages of of like hip-hop and being one of the earlier popularizers of hip-hop and rap um but then later also being present for like other developments like for example i mean ironically and interestingly discovering and being the reason why the most uh, highest selling hip-hop artist or rap rapper basically eminem discovering him in the late 90s and then producing his records and giving him a boost so that he became the highest selling, I believe, musician in the past 20 years, both in the 2000s and the 2010s. And Eminem, we don't have a birth time for him, but he has the moon in Aquarius and a Libra stellium with the sun and Uranus, Mars, and Pluto there. So what's funny about that is that then Eminem and Dr. Dre have the classic like sun-moon synastry, 
which is like the classic thing that's supposed to be good for relationships or for couples. Um, those two have it and ended up becoming a team that kind of um, found major success as a result of their partnership. Mm-hmm. Mm, and they both have like real outlier stories as well, which makes sense. But they found connection or synastry through their outlier story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and that their outlier stuff that at first was outlier or edgy in terms of their art um dr dre doing hip-hop and doing rap which then eventually became mainstream and then eminem being initially like a white rapper and that being odd or or weird at first but then that becoming more mainstream um both have that similar sort of like story that we keep coming back to over and over again for aquarius Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and you know dr dre's work with with nwa like they were innovative in that time and context and you know in terms of the history of hip-hop like nwa being one of the early groups kind of known for putting west coast sound on the map and and like the musically speaking turning to jazz and funk in a way that um wasn't really typical of east coast um east coast rap back then and then thinking i don't know if this is true but i think it is the case that Dre picking up Eminem really is what put Detroit on the map as like a, a region of hip hop that prior to that it was like East Coast, West Coast, and then you had Dirty South coming in. And, um, but it wasn't until Eminem that you got like Detroit and the kind of like Midwestern folks popping on the map. Right. And, well, and, the, and then also the funny thing about Dre is that he was primarily a producer. Mm-hmm. So he's like producing and using technology um, and, and to find different beats and different things like that. And then would be producing all these major um, albums and other things like that because he was really good from a technical standpoint. And then that carried through later into the 2010s in terms of his interest in technology and ability to like see future trends technologically because he um, created or co-founded the company that created the headphones that became wildly popular mm-hmm. in the 2010s and then eventually was able to sell that to I think Apple or somewhere or something for like a billion dollars, which made him like the highest selling or or richest um, musician, I think at that point in time, highest selling or highest um, in terms of just finances for like a year or two or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I think he had like the highest net worth of a musician and he might've been like at the among the very few if not the first black man to have a net worth over a billion dollars like it was consequential not just in terms of music and hip-hop but on a larger scale as well right yeah Mm -hmm. yeah so that is all interesting uh what about you aaron do you have um any examples that really come to mind as like aquarius placements um that have stuck with you yeah i mean i was thinking about um David Lynch and Laura Dern as both being Sun and Aquarius people. Um, and uh, I think that David Lynch like really just creates his own worlds in his work. Um, and they can be quite dark. Like it, it has that feeling of like Saturnian otherness or like almost like other realmy fringe type realities that he's creating. Um, and he works a lot with Laura Dern. Like, I don't, uh, I haven't looked at the synastry between their charts, but there must be something going on there because she's been in a lot of Lynch's films and she's sort of like the 
queen of like weird horror. And when I think about Laura Dern, I picture this like face that she's able to make a lot that conveys so much information and conveys like horror and amazement. And they both have this kind of, um, oh, that's interesting. So she's an Aquarius, but she's got this amazing stellium in Pisces, um, which yeah, makes sense with her her malleability of expression as well. But I think that there's sort of um, presentation of otherworldly type realities and experiences feels very Aquarian to me. Hmm. Yeah, David Lynch films. I think I I think of as absurd and time bendy kind of thing where you even after watching Mulholland Drive how many times I couldn't tell you what's actually happening I just know it's really out there and that I don't I can't tell you how that story goes that's so true it has the sense of time being um not constricted to any kind of linear pathway which is very Aquarian like it's outside of time but then you have these like mergings or bendings of um like shifting between realms of time and twin peaks was a lot like that too mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and like, also that quality that we talked about in terms of like breaking the norm of like what even is a movie what does it mean to tell a story <laughs> can you make the argument that Maholan drive told you was did it have a beginning middle and end i don't know but it was a movie you know the movie started and stopped so in that sense it did Mm -hmm. progressive storytelling because you're like what's happening here and then later thinking back on it like wait was that a dream that i had or was that a david lynch film that i watched and (laughs) the the two kind of like merge with each other Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so non-linear that could be a good keyword for aquarius Mm -hmm. definitely yeah yeah non-linear simultaneous Mm -hmm. yeah it's like so much of that both and it's right. simultaneous mm-hmm. and nonlinear and everywhere and nowhere in that way that like I think going back to that triad that you opened us up with, Aaron, like thinking of Capricorn Aquarius and then Pisces Aquarius is like aware that there's this paradox, but seems perfect like, well, if there's this paradox, then neither of these things is really what it seems, and so the truth doesn't mean anything, so why bother to resolve it? I'll just laugh at it or do nothing with it or make a whole ideology out of it. And then like, I'll leave Pisces to figure out how to like put everything inside the circle and make sense of it. So true. It reminds me of one of my favorite Aquarius images, which is a bridge. Um, And it's something that is structural, but also suspended above and beyond something. And um, what you were saying, Bear, reminded me of that because there are these like points of contact or these points of like touching down into something more grounded on either side. But the bridge itself is able to go beyond or transcend or kind of suspend the usual experience of traveling that space. Yeah. This made me look up because I was just curious because I was, when we were talking about non linear things or made me think of nonlinear storytelling and it made me look up Quentin Tarantino who's famous for mm-hmm. his non nonlinear storylines and he has Venus and Saturn in Aquarius 
Um, I don't think we have a birth time, so we don't know what house that's in or what his rising is, but it's kind of interesting in terms of like, you know, his most famous film, Pulp Fiction, being told in these different segments or different like episodes. So it's like episodic, but the the time frame is all mixed around. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's so perfect. Or what was like one of his earliest films? Was it called Six Rooms or something like that? And it's um, a story about like a hotel on New Year's Eve. And it's giving these segments of stories from different rooms within the hotel. And the stories are all happening simultaneously, but you get these kind of like snippets or moments of them. I'm pretty sure it's called Six Rooms, but I could be wrong. Four, four rooms. Four rooms. Okay, there's only four. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that was 1995. That was not long after the Saturn and Aquarius period as well, which may have been uh, around that time period. All right, we're back from a second break. And why don't we transition into this point about talking more about the contrast between the different signs of the zodiac and Aquarius? Because sometimes it's through comparing what other signs mean that you get a, a better sense of what Aquarius actually means. And one of the things, even though we've talked about it a lot, that I did want to um, contrast first was uh, Camille Michelle Gray helped us with some research for this episode, and she created a table comparing Leo and Aquarius that I thought was really good. So she has a Leo column and an Aquarius column. So in the Leo column, one of the keywords is me, versus in the Aquarius column, the keyword is us. In the Leo column, we have warm, which is summer. In Aquarius, we have cool, which is winter in the northern hemisphere where the tropical zodiac was developed. Um, Leo is presence, Aquarius is distance. Leo is the cheerleader versus Aquarius is the misfit. Leo is spontaneity, Aquarius is more rigid. Leo is the sun, Aquarius is Saturn. Leo is subjective, Saturn or Aquarius is objective. Leo is emotive, Aquarius is aloof. Leo is to trust slash forgive, while Aquarius is to question. That's a really interesting one, actually, because like, uh, Leo's for Leo's sometimes like trust and um, not faithfulness, but um, like fidelity. There's there's like a key word because it's funny because it comes up in like weird ways sometimes. Like Trump, for example, would always like make people pledge their loyalty. That's what mm-hmm. it is. Lo- yeah. Loyalty is very important to Leo. Mm-hmm. Um, versus the question, Leo is charisma versus Aquarius can be awkward. Uh, Leo is status, while Aquarius is outcast. Leo is center of attention, whereas Aquarius is groups. Leo is the showman, versus Aquarius is the intellectual. Leo is to be the light, versus Aquarius is to enlighten. Leo is to perform, Aquarius is to inform. Leo is thinking, Aquarius is being. And Leo is the king slash queen, and Aquarius is the kingdom. So those are some of the contrasts that Camille came up with that are really good. Um, does that spark any thoughts in either of you or any jumping off points? Yeah, I think that's such an amazing, like clear outline of the oppositional qualities between the sign signs. Um, one of the main oppositional tendencies that I think about for myself is that Leo is about the heart, whereas Aquarius is about the mind. And so it's like a very 
archetypal opposition between heart and mind. And I think that says a lot about what both signs do with feeling and expression, because Leo is about the expression of something or the sharing or generosity of something. And Aquarius is about the withholding of expression in the interest of some greater um, purpose that is being served. And so there's this like heart-mind opposition between expressing or withholding or thinking and feeling as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think. For, go, go ahead. For sure, especially because thinking is such a, like an internalized process most of the time. You can be like thinking or feeling something, but not having it as visible on the outside. And maybe sometimes Aquarius runs into issues with that, and that can lead to sometimes some of the downsides where they can come off, at least on the surface, as like cold or distant or robotic, even if there's things happening internally that aren't visible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's something there uh, too about the way, and I wonder if the being and thinking got flipped, because it seems like Leo's more. Or, yeah, mm-hmm. I was a little mm-hmm. uncertain yeah. about that. Um, especially given all how all the rest of them were trending but thinking about the um just that opposition anyhow between being and thinking and loyalty and fidelity and even like the sun and conjunctions <laughs> and saturn and oppositions um that there's something there about the way that without the light being shown by the sun by leo there wouldn't be the shadows that give us depth and so there's something about like the shadow, the secret that is created only through that that opposition process. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Aquarius side being the side that's maybe more more aware of it or more able to to step outside of it, like Leo's so busy down in the ground being and shining and cheerleading and exuding and whatnot and emoting. Um, that that doesn't leave the Saturnian amount of time and distance and um, airy, dry, separating qualities necessary to to step back and away from, um, and direct that like sovereignty and agency towards um, towards the expression itself. Which is why I think you get Leo being so fixated with loyalty. Are you here? Are you loyal to me? Whereas I think Aquarius is more of the concern with fidelity. Um, so in the sense of like, and maybe here we could use monogamy and polyamory as like stand-ins for this, because I think it illustrates it a little bit more clearly that Leo sitting there saying like, be loyal, be monogamous, just stay with me. And Aquarius is like, well, if choosing me means that you're like making your life less than, if you're not being, if you aren't able to maintain fidelity with your ideology, when you're loyal to me, then you're not actually being faithful to the relationship. Um, I don't think Leo mm. sees that necessarily as much as my Leo placements would like to think we do. <laughs> yeah. I love that so much. And also, like, you know, Aquarians like polyamory because they love a good group experience. So there's that too. <laughs> but I think, yeah, what you're saying also speaks to like the need for Leo to feel seen and appreciated. Um, And that's part of where the loyalty and sense of connection and desire for belonging can come from. Um, But Aquarius doesn't need to feel seen or appreciated. It just needs to feel right. 
or have the right concept or be insightful about something. And so there's a sense that Aquarius doesn't mind being in opposition to the group or in opposition to the place of belonging because it's more interested in like having the right framework for looking at it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And that's really interesting about the, the, the me versus or us versus we type difference between those two and the tendency to think in multiples to some extent with Aquarius or to want to like spread things around. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like a personal versus collective orientation for sure. Mm. Yeah, like Leo seeing a group as being compro- composed of many individuals and Aquarius, like for better or for worse, and Aquarius seeing a group as being an individual group and it like kind of erasing the, the, the individual members, um, kind of like maybe Aquarius is like an ant colony or a beehive or uh, a... <clears throat> mycelial network and all of its little fungi spores and whatnot versus um you know mammals where you're like yeah those are definitely a bunch of different individual bodies and uh i don't know meerkats may have a group but they aren't like a hive mind the way that ants and bees are yeah or, or the way that you have like those forests that where you have like a singular tree in some sense that has its characteristics but then which is like leo but then underneath that you have a whole network of all the different roots that are connecting together the different trees in a forest mm-hmm. yeah root systems and mycelial networks feel so aquarian because they're also invisible like there's that sense of their um, unseen or etheric nature or something that exists outside of like the space of light and warmth but the interconnectedness of it and we can see also that we're one step away from pisces where nothing is differentiated at that point like we get to the interconnectedness with aquarius and then by the time we get to pisces it's all just one anyways mm-hmm. yeah and let's definitely transition to that um one thing oh yeah bear one thing you said was you mentioned like polyamory and i thought that was a really interesting example because that's another one where there might be some sometimes people run into issues where they're like intellectually that makes sense or or they might sometimes some people have that experience of getting into a polyamorous relationship being open intellectually but then sometimes the experience of that being different which just makes me think where some people maybe can't handle that or aren't wired to handle that because of the more leo component that like wants that direct one-on-one connection or feeling of fidelity and it just makes me think again of other instances where we've run into that like with um, stoicism or other philosophies where sometimes there can be like the abstract like ideally this is a great system that should work for everybody and for some people it does or for many people it can but then there can sometimes be like outliers where it doesn't quite apply and that difference t- sometimes between theory versus practice mm-hmm. yeah i think mm. you know the, the the sun is sitting there being like pure spirit pure consciousness and Saturn's out there like, okay, these are the boundaries of it. I could see this works. These are the long-term implications. But if we then visit the squares and we go have a chat with Taurus, who's all Venusian and relational, but make it sensory, make me feel it in my body. And Mars, like, yeah, I got feelings. They're intense. I have lots of passions. Um, you know, I, would, I could imagine Marcus Aurelius being like, 
you know, we could get rid of Mars. We don't need those passions, actually. I know he didn't like to have to be involved in military stuff. Um, and I think that, that Aquarius is like, yeah, ideologically, this makes sense. This tracks. There's like good logic behind it. I could, I could endorse that. But then you have like Aquarius still has to go talk to the like the Taurus physical body and be like, are you actually okay with your partner being somebody else? What was it like to smell someone else on your partner? Did that arouse some violent passions in your Scorpio hearts? Because if that's the case, then it's it doesn't matter if it intellectually makes sense. Like you would have to erase and sublimate and disassociate from your your true Leo solar identity um, and what actually gives you physical and relational belonging um and like deny your real motivations if you were to just side with the ideology yeah and and when sometimes the value or the place of like selfishness i don't know if there's another word for that but sometimes the distinction or the tension sometimes between selfishness versus whatever the opposite what is the opposite of selfishness like selflessness self yeah yeah Mm -hmm. or maybe it's like uh, self and thinking about the self-centeredness because it's like well the center you know like even thinking about the symbol of the sun i'm like yeah the self is the little dot it's the circumpunct in this in the middle of the circle that's mm-hmm. why we have that symbol for the sun um but i think there's something something there about self-centeredness maybe the opposite the opposite of that is actually self-negation mm. Like I'm only yeah. self or there is no self and that right. the the like secret third rail in the middle or something is is maybe actually selflessness and an acknowledgement that there is self but doing less of that ness. Yeah. Yeah, like a queer um Leo is more about uh over focus on the self at times whereas aquarius is about denial of the self like i don't think we've talked much about the denial aspect of aquarius but mm. it bears mentioning mm-hmm. all of us this, in denial about it yeah exactly we're like we'll just pretend that doesn't exist um but even just when you were like describing that fixity struggle of polyamory bear which was kind of getting me laughing um it made me think about how Anything ideological like that can take uh, a certain amount of depersonalization from our experience, which, if we go too far with it, can be a denial of our experience or denial of the heart. And then we get some of the Aquarian tendencies of like rationalizing away feeling or holding ourselves above feeling or resisting warmth and connection because it doesn't fit with our idea of what's happening and that's some of where that heart mind struggle can come in yeah thinking about leo is like you know chest belly your tender your tender soft insides and saturn being like no nobody's getting in here yeah exactly like it's very much chronos being banished to a place away from light and warmth like leo is the light and the warmth it's the home of the sun it's the hearth of the zodiac in a way um and aquarius and saturn are like (laughs) the absence of that uh for better and for worse or the sort of opposition to it yeah that makes a lot of sense and just to clarify, I wasn't necessarily criticizing polyamory earlier, but just the different experiences different people have and, and the way that sometimes like things come up 
uh, in different ways. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Or someone with a lot of Aquarius placements might feel really comfy in polyamorous dynamics. Mm-hmm. Um, and someone with a very different chart might just feel uncomfy with it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sure. Right. I think if we think about I'm imagining here, like instead of, I feel like a lot of this conversation, we could be imagining placing the sun in Aquarius and orienting from that perspective. But if we were to place the moon in Aquarius instead, what does it mean to? be nourished and fed and to feel safe and comfortable inside of distance what does it mean when like you feel more comfortable in the cold than in the hot you know like there's nothing wrong with hot tubs scorpio um (laughs) but if they make you feel queasy you probably shouldn't hang out in one and so like maybe here the like the heat of the hot tub is like polyamory it's like it's just what it is but it's that how it actually resonates in our in our animal body like what naturally what emotive motion it sparks off in us. Um, and I think Saturn has the tendency to want to deny that or to say, well, that motion is wrong or to ask like, hmm, well, what would, what would one, what would the abstract individual feel in this situation and like as a resistance to the, the selfishness or the self-centeredness of Leo? Like, ah, I reject the self-centered perspective. So instead of acknowledging that this made me very angry or jealous or unhappy, I'm going to ask myself, what would one feel about this scenario? Mm. Yeah. Definitely. That makes sense. Um, All right. Why don't we start going into some of the other signs? One of the ones Mm -hmm. I wanted to get into is the sort of progression, but also what is the corrective function of Pisces, which is the sign that follows after Aquarius? And I think one of the things, one of the things uh, Camille wrote down in our notes was that by inserting emotion and compassion into the desire for a more humane world, that that's one of the things. And I think that that really makes sense. That you, some of the like the colder or the more distant emotional connection that Aquarius is missing in intellectualizing things, you really get it in Spades when you when you get to Pisces. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's almost like the difference between the perspective of like the ghost in the machine, that type of perspective, or like the little alien inside the head in Men in Black. It's another way <laughs> I think about Aquarius sometimes. Um, versus like the spirit inside the machine, the soul inside the 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 body. It gets it gets watery. You know, it becomes so much more. It becomes downward trending. It sinks into us. We're not trying to float away. We're trying to get back. And in the way that the ocean, the like water, the whole water cycle is one thing. You can't actually separate any part of water from any of its other expressions. But for all intents and purposes, it's a lot easier to think about oceans versus rivers versus rain. Um, and I think that Pisces is that correction of going like, yeah, 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 we can get scientific about the water cycle, but I just want something to put in this cup. I just need to take a bath. Um, and, uh, yeah, something tactile and that tactileness being the entryway into there being more feeling, less separation, more coming together and merging the way that the ocean collects all the water. Mm, Yeah. First of all, never not be thinking about Aquarius as the tiny alien inside the head in my mind. <laughs> I'm gonna think about that forever and ever. It's so real. If you just need one image from this whole podcast, it's that. <laughs> but 
I I think that's such a beautiful way to describe it, Bear, to capture the moment when the cloud becomes condensation or like that edge of the cloud becoming rain in the water table. Um, and there's the sense also that when we shift into Pisces, it is like the full expression of oneness and connection that we were trying to get to with Aquarius. And we were talking about Aquarius as forward thinking or forward oriented or oriented towards future. And so it's kind of like we envision in Aquarius what we actually arrive in when we reach Pisces. And at the same time, there's um, some things that need to be corrected there as well, which is maybe like feeling the grief of our rigidity and feeling the loss that can happen through our high expectations and also feeling the vulnerable self on the other side of those extreme expectations and rigidity. I think that when we arrive in Pisces, we come into contact with all of that as well. For sure. Yeah. Um, in Aquarius, that forward thinking component that's thinking so much about time and has a vision of the future, and the vision is largely um, motivated by the idea of like making things easier for people, often through technology or other things like that, in order to save more time or in order to improve life in that way. Um, the motivation for Pisces instead becomes like compassion and empathy as the primary motivating factors, as well as the means by which one tries to go about creating a better world for everyone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can almost imagine Aquarius going out and, and doing the really scientific set of, of measurements and going, well, see, there's this percentage of, of good here, and this is the distribution, and these people are not in that space, so this is what needs to happen to correct it. But I think Pisces, that correction, thinking about the correction that Pisces represents made me think about something my grandparents said, um, my grandmother said, with respect to ideological differences. And she said, on the face of it, it seems like there are, there are really stark differences of opinion, but when you get down to it, almost every single person is really just concerned with feeling safe enough and comfortable enough to enjoy time with family and to not feel like they're they're being overrun and losing their their freedom of choice. Um, and I think it's that kind of Jupiter Jupiterian thing, or if we think about Aquarius as the social institution and the letter of the law, um, and that like Saturn's exactingness, um, and make it permanent, no take backs, no exceptions. Jupiter's over there being like, well, the spirit of the law was really this. And like that one, you, we need to take in all of the, all of the context, everybody in the community. And so instead of being, maybe that's the difference between uh, retributive and restorative justice or retribution versus repair. Jupiter comes in and says like, let's say yes more. Let's say yes to the spirit and let's dwell less upon all the things that we're, we're in radical opposition to. Like that didn't, I feel like Pisces recognizes all the ways in which radical binary opposition, even to bad things, um, just reifies that existence of the bad things that we need to stand in radical opposition to. And Pisces at least maybe believes, whether or not it's true, that by bringing in more of everything and transcending into like what makes what we all share in common, 
rather than the things that set, set, that set us apart, that there can be more cohesion, a better future. I think it's still future-oriented in, in a different way. Yeah, it makes me think about, like, I don't think we've talked much about this, but the strong ideals of Aquarius can ultimately become very divisive to the point where we have a war of ideologies or these really, really hard lines in the sand between different belief systems or perspectives on reality. And if Aquarius is about knowing and being right, like each group <laughs> thinks that they're right. But what you were saying, Bear, makes me think that the reasoning behind that is to have some kind of belonging. Like, well, this is my group of people that I am a part of because they understand what's right and they know things the way that I know things. And then when we come to Pisces, there is this deeper healing that happens through coming into Jupiter's realm that says, okay, well, there is space for everyone here. There is connection. Like we see more our um, connection as human beings rather than our differences, or there's this sense that like ideologies can coexist with one another without it being so incredibly divisive. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like the thinking about the the temperament differences there, like the cold, cold, aloof Aquarius that's so concerned with ideological purity that it does become divisive, and then Pisces coming in. Like water is still more warm than ice cold air, um, and so like bringing slightly more warmth, slightly more connectivity, um, yeah, creating creating space where like it's the divisiveness itself that gets labeled as the thing that doesn't belong. Mm, yeah, yeah, and I, I think about the way that the last four signs of the zodiac are. Saturn signs bookended by Jupiter's signs. <laughs> yeah, totally. Like, like necessity of that in so many ways. Like we have these extreme highs and lows that are integrated together, but also that, you know, when we start with Sagittarius, the levity of Jupiter's realm needs to be followed by the reality of Capricorn, like Saturn's realm, the hard reality when we get there. But yeah. then we still need the relief of Jupiter's levity on the other side, like we're going through this kind of tunnel with it. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, it's like, oh, go ahead. There's these real themes when you transition from Sagittarius to Capricorn of like optimism versus a fundamental pessimism, um, which is not always bad because sometimes pessimism plays a very constructive role in like keeping you alive. Um, but then you run into a similar thing in terms of Aquarius still being a sign that's drawing very much on Saturn in rejecting things and, and the negation of something. Whereas once you get to Pisces, we're in a much more um, sign of affirmation, of affirming things, of saying yes to things and uh, sort of fundamental optimism, sometimes bordering on going too far and being op optimistic to being like uh, Pollyanna or, or there's like another term for that. Um, but yeah, it's an interesting transition, getting out of two Saturn signs and getting back to a Jupiter sign. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the thinking too about the difference in in triplicity and the other planets that that have some sort of sway in those signs, and going from this like Saturn, Mercury, Jupiter, the three triplicity lords of Aquarius, um, which all are just there's that. 
diurnal, dry, technical, externalized. Um, generated a different list of things for for those, but I think comparing that to Pisces, where it's like, well, we're bringing Venus and Mars and the Moon back into the show, so we still get Jupiter and we still get that expansive yes, yes, please. But we're saying yes, please to bringing in more relationality, more passion, more of the Moon, more of the body, and orienting from how things actually feel. Um, and so I was thinking about, you know, earlier we talked a little bit about, you know, the Stoics and, and Buddhism having a, a similar kind of bent in terms of looking at um, non-attachment being one of the responses to everything is impermanent and there's suffering that is entailed in life. Um, but the other side of that is like, well, compassion, compassion, compassion. And even like the Om Mane Padme Om, that mantra of compassion is said to contain all of the Buddhist teachings. And so I think that's like kind of maybe a good way of encapsulating what what Jupiter ruling Pisces is attempting to do in response to like, yes, the world is suffering and we could get really pessimistic and we could get really, really focused on on controlling the minutia of our actions now in hopes that we could control the future to make it somehow not be impermanent maybe in the future. Or we could just generate as much compassion as possible for the reality that like all of us really struggle with this. And then it mm. makes everything so much simpler. And like that is an actual, just as much as Aquarius is concerned with the truth of, you know, what, what gigahertz frequency is this sound being transmitted at? Pisces is just as concerned with the truth that we all are born, we all die, so we think, or so it seems. And we all struggle with the in between process, all the Saturn stuff, in between the fun <laughs> Jupiter stuff. Right. One of the things that will be interesting that's come up really recently um, in the tail end of you know Saturn and Aquarius that we mentioned briefly earlier was just like the emergence of um, artificial intelligence and some questions about that. Like if you create something that's intelligent or has signs of intelligence, but it's not quite the same as human intelligence and like what the dividing line is or what the difference is between those things. And that's a very like Aquarian type th- theme. And it'll be interesting as we transition into Saturn and Pisces, um, you know, what the contrast is there and what some of those other elements are that come up that might be missing from that. Yeah, I definitely think Saturn's ingress into Pisces is going to help us illustrate this last like bridge of the zodiac because we'll feel quite directly what it's like. Yeah, it'll add in some of those missing pieces because one of the things in like the 19. 19- 60s 60s 1950s there was this period where most of the television um networks had um just just a black and white television and then when saturn went into pisces there was this like intense two or three year period where a bunch of them converted to doing color uh television shows like programming so it's like, like that idea of like moving something that's like monochromatic to having the vibrancy of this additional dimension that helps to bring something out or make it more lifelike in some way. Mm, love that. Jupiter is so much more vivid than Saturn in some ways. <laughs> yes, yes. Like that technicolor dream coat situation. Um one of the things that the that came to mind as you were bringing up uh, artificial intelligence and 
you know, um, like I think chat GPT and a couple other things seeming to pass the Turing test, um, is the difference between sentience and soul, but really like the question of what makes a person, Mm -hmm. um, particularly if we're thinking about, um, you know, like even what is science? Um, there's a very particular type of science that's a, a, uh, a descendant of the enlightenment movement. Um, but there's also indigenous knowledge systems that are consensus that's passed down orally for all of human history. Um, and if we're looking at some of those worldviews, then trees are people, whales are people. Um, there's a lot of non-human peoples in the world. And I think maybe Pluto coming through Aquarius and wrapping up the Saturn and Aquarius are and also our entry into the age of Aquarius is maybe posing the question or pressing us to answer the question and interrogate it a little bit more. It's like, what makes a person? What's the difference between having sentience and having soul? Maybe Aquarius mm-hmm. is that sentience and, and Jupiter and Pisces are more concerned with the soul or the spirit or whatever the difference is between those, if there is one. Mm. Yeah, I like that. All right, um, let's move on to other comparisons. So that's the opposition between Aquarius and Leo. Um, usually we go through the, the triplicities and the modalities. I know we've talked a bit already about the triplicity comparison of the other two Earth signs, but I just wanted to check in and see if there's any other thoughts on that of the um, connection or similarities with the other two air signs, which are Gemini, ruled by Mercury, and um, Libra, which is ruled by Venus. Uh, what is it that's new, or what is it that's different at this point? I guess with Gemini, we had a we started with a mutable air sign. Uh, then we went to Libra, which is a cardinal air sign, and then finally we went to Aquarius, which is a fixed air sign. So it's like one of the things about Aquarius is it's like the least um, malleable or the most rigid of the three air signs, since air is otherwise something that's characterized by. Um, its lack of rigidity or its ability to adapt and move and connect things and, and adapt to different shapes. Um, but as a fixed sign ruled by Saturn, it seems like Aquarius is like um, the least malleable in that way. Mm-hmm. Maybe that made me think about the notion of the doldrums. Like, what do you get when you get stagnant air? Like, well, stagnant air is not very great, especially if it's kind of damp. That's like miasma and a whole bunch of other. A whole bunch of other like connotations that aren't particularly savory or pleasant, but dwelling on what we were talking about earlier in terms of Saturn's association with trade over waterways or wealth connected to water. If you have a boat that's sitting on the ocean and there's no breeze and the air's not moving, then that's very bad and you might die. Um, and so yeah. thinking about like, or that even being. Even the beginning of like, you know, three years ago when Saturn went into Aquarius, all of a sudden, you know, this pandemic breaks out and we have this like airborne virus and that people are having to like wear masks in order to attempt to like not get sick because of something that's being passed primarily through the air. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And also the like the big push in in response to that to update HVAC systems, which, you know, if we're looking at public schools or things like that, like is illuminating some of the long-standing infrastructural problems that have happened because of some of the ideological things in our state um, institutions. But even thinking about like that that stagnant air, that lack of movement with the with the ships, I think it's a really good way of of 
sinking into the parts of Saturn and Aquarius that are challenging, like that negation, like the the desire for the perfect utopian thing. And if it's not the perfect utopian thing, then why bother? Nothing matters anyway. It's like, mm. oh, I like maybe there's some quality of Aquarius having that feeling like there's no wind in your sails. Um or like mm-hmm. the air is more stagnant than it is. We're being harmed in that way. Mm. Mm, it does kind of make me think about like the different forms of air and wind with each of the signs in this triplicity and Gemini ruling the lungs. Like it's quite literally personal air or our personal experience of breath. And then with Libra, we have like shared spaces of air or, um, you know, air that gets passed from one to the other or becomes relational. And Aquarius makes me think about outer space, which is a vacuum, which is uh, like there's no air in outer, outer space. But um, this sense of a vast vacuum feels very Aquarian to me or even like the absence of air or that fixity of it um, and the, the collective aspect of it as well as being like just beyond the earth or beyond our personal or relational expressions of air. Mm. I like that. Yeah, it's like yeah. how how can you how can you have those relational qualities of Saturn's busy saying no to breathing? <laughs> yeah. Right. yeah, you have to breathe to exist, and Saturn's like, no, no, it's fine. Don't need it. <laughs> that's, that's silly mortal stuff. That's in a perfect a world, this breath would last forever. Yeah, it's a waste of time to breathe. So, <laughs> yeah, um, and then. Going back to the communication thing with the three air signs, Gemini is kind of like like talking, just like having a conversation one-on-one with another person. Um, Libra is similar, and it takes it into like a social dynamic of like hosting a party where you're talking to a number of different people like in a room. Um, and in Aquarius, I think of like something like Wikipedia, where you have like a bunch of different people that are dialoguing and like creating something together that's collaborative in some way. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That image of the library that you gave earlier, Chris, that it's like collective spaces of information or conveyed information. Although I guess um, people are shushed in a library, so maybe you're not talking there. <laughs> Yeah, although that's actually interesting because, I mean, you know, things like Wikipedia bring up some of the issues with group dynamics and and with um, whatever, like, the prevailing thought is or or something like that can sometimes be shut out if there's too many people uh, in terms of establishing, like, what the consensus reality is. And sometimes, like, consensus reality can shut out other viewpoints or things like that. Like, that's sort of an issue with like the astrology pages on Wikipedia, for example, which is just that astrologers are outnumbered by skeptics. So it's like the astrologers don't really control the um, narrative or the astrology pages on Wikipedia, and they all largely trend towards being negative towards astrology because they're sort of outnumbered by a larger consensus view of those that that aren't familiar with astrology but think it's a negative thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Makes me think about like the difference between information or words in Gemini and an actual story or a conversation in Libra versus like an archetype 
And I don't think it's the meaning. I think Pisces is what gives us meaning and that Aquarius is more about like the what transitions a whole bunch of accumulated or collected stories and conversations into a body of knowledge, like producing, um, yeah, pr- like production of information, production of knowledge, I think is like that Aquarius component of it. Yeah. Mm. And in, in terms of the how the signs relate, let's say like Aquarius versus Gemini, um, Aquarius might be impressed with Gemini's ability to like communicate and like talk about a number of different things. Um, but it might consider some of those discussions to be kind of surface level and not be very deep or to not stick with any one subject for too long. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas Gemini might be um, impressed by Aquarius's um, depth of knowledge or like wide ranging intellectual interests and tendencies to create overarching like philosophical models for different things but they might at the same time um, consider them to be like too serious or too heavy all of the time and not capable of you know just having a light conversation that's like not being able to make small talk for example mm-hmm. yeah i just like heard bart simpson's voice in my head being like boring <laughs> right uh, <laughs> yeah um, yeah and libra's over there like you're all words and you're all meaning and nothing sounds nice and like can't can't there be beauty like make it make it move me please yeah well let's talk about that so then comparison with aquarius to libra um you know we bring in some of like social niceties with libra and the sensitivity to reading social cues and and being able to be sort of um, cognizant of that that aquarius cares a little bit less about because of its tendency to reject social norms yeah i think aquarius probably envies the ability of libra to be understood which is like you know something that can be a real pain point for aquarian placements it's like this feeling of being misunderstood um and the eloquence of the way that libra placements express themselves um, but Libra might envy the courage of Aquarius to um, go beyond something that's going to be more readily accepted or mm, rock the boat a little bit. Mm-hmm. Made me think about uh, kind of like basic divisions within rhetoric between logos, ethos, and pathos. So, like logos, the word or logic, ethos, ethics, pathos, like feelings, literally like um, the word. Pathetic actually means able to arouse pathos or empathy, not like, oh, sad, pitiable. Um, that's our connotation. But thinking about Gemini as logos, like you can have a lot of logic, but if you, if it doesn't, if there's no purpose to it, if there's no ethics involved and you're not or touching people's hearts, then it's just words for words' sake. And most people don't like that for very long. And I think, like thinking about, like you said, Aaron, like Aquarius probably really admires Libra's ability to to get into pathos. Like, wow, like oh, here I am with this perfect ethical system that would give us utopia and perfect social relationships, and nobody cares because Saturn, you know, Aquarius is up there. Like, well, here's the here's the, I have the ethos, and I'm I'm gonna talk to my little buddy Mercury over there, and I'm gonna bring you the logos and. Venus and Libra over there, like, yeah, cool. Until you come over here and get the heart, nobody doesn't matter to anybody. 
Yeah. Or sometimes like presentation matters mm -hmm. that you have mm -hmm. to like, in order to be able to sell an idea or an ideal, you have to get people in the door um, at first, at, at the very beginning. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Libra's and, like, here's your great idea, but make it cute. Yeah. 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 Like, or even, like, I don't know if this is just my brain going, Hugh Tran reminds me of this, but Hugh Tran's an astrologer and designer, and I've chatted with him a little bit about design and thinking about like actually good design makes the information better. It makes the the depth and the veracity like it improves the communication completely irrespective of what information is being conveyed and the particular design method you employ. But good design makes it better. Yeah. Like yeah. even though even though it's common like saying that you shouldn't judge a book by its cover, on the other hand, like if your book has a really bad cover uh, people might not get past that initial point in order to see the information that you've you've collected inside. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it makes me think about Aquarius's concern with accessibility as well, like that sense that there has to be like space for an inclusion of others, and Libra can teach Aquarius something about like visual accessibility, just like you were saying, Bear, that like good design can make something more accessible in many ways mm -hmm. makes it more legible more intelligible um, which allows people to come like use their own discernment and to like have more agency and sovereignty which i think gets us back into that saturn aquarius leo opposition with mm -hmm. like the the support from from those little like points of thales or the the trine sextile spots Mm -hmm. And and to make something more pleasurable too, like pleasure for pleasure's sake, which is a beautiful strength of Libra and Aquarius, or like you know anything Saturn dominant is like, well, what's the point of that? <laughs> like it doesn't mm -hmm. need to feel good. <laughs> yeah, the the correct proportion and relationship of talking or noise or vocal utterances and lack of vocal utterances—that's how you get music. <laughs> yes, that's all it is. Um. I just thought of something also typography typography mm. would be where libra comes in and this because this was something when i was working on my book for like 10 years um and i wanted to publish it i wanted to self-publish it but i wanted to make it not look like a self-published book which is that sometimes when people used to self-publish things it would look kind of shoddy uh, or not well put together because the person usually doesn't have any background or specialization in the many different things you need to do in order to put a book together. Um, so one of the things I had to do was research um, typography in different fonts, not only in order to, I wanted to pick out a font that was like visually appealing to read and made it so that the book was like a pleasure to read, but also determining things like the spacing of the font, how far apart the different lines are, how many words there should be on a line because sometimes if it's too short, um, if there's if you're not able to fit enough words on a line, then um, it reads like it's going too quick. Versus if um, the lines are too long, then it feels a little bit too heavy, and people's like eyes get tired. Um, but that notion of like proportion and spacing and the aesthetics of presenting information, it's very much a Venus Venus type thing. Mm, definitely, or Libra Libra type type thing. Um, and then finally, the last thing there before we move on from Libra is I had used the analogy in the Libra episode that um, 
Taurus, which is the other sign ruled by Venus, is like a garden outside, and Libra is like an art gallery. Um, and I think to continue that, um, as another air sign, Aquarius is kind of like a like a science lab, because um, it's interesting because in our culture we we have this shared. There's a little bit of, of a tinge to that when you talk talk about like an art gallery or a science lab compared to let's say a garden of this notion that there's this sort of artificiality of man-made objects compared to how things are in nature or how it comes off to us as humans things that are natural and just arise naturally versus things that are man-made having this sort of artificial component to them I have a hard time like fully articulating what that is but it seems like a component that comes up with the air signs especially with libra and with Aquarius. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in Toronto, we have the Science Center, and it feels like a very Aquarian place. Like it's just all these um, little spaces of innovation and information about innovative initiatives and all these different things. Yeah, like a, like a history museum or something like that, or sort of that often have like a science wing in them or something like that. Mm -hmm. I think that um, ashrams and monasteries have a kind of Aquarian nature to them as well, like these collective spaces that are outside of like the uh, dominant ways of living in the world, but also have this like tinge of asceticism to them um, mm. and feel like uh, also spaces that are intended to be in support of the progress of humankind. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. I think it's funny. I don't know how much of this analogy I picked up by virtue of being one of your students, uh, but I often describe the difference between Taurus and Libra as the, you know, Venus's garden versus Venus's tea room, mm -hmm. where it's, it's about socializing in Libra and in theory, a garden is also about socializing, especially if we think back to like um, medieval Islamic um, empires, like that time period of the garden as a place where you convene and um, where different types of socializing are permitted. So like what's, what, um, what is permissible inside of a garden versus what's permissible inside the tea room? Um, and then maybe Gemini is in, in that context is like the classroom. Like you're... You, when you're in the garden, you're you're out and about and exploring. And if you, I've spent some time working with kids and working with kids with food and gardening in particular, it's the easiest place to get a classroom of kids to be engaged. When there's like things that are in nature and you can eat them, kids are totally enthralled. And so it's like the garden becomes this natural classroom if you just have conversations about how one thing relates to another. But like you can't quite do the same thing in the tea room. Right. Mm. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, all right, that might provide a good transition point to start talking. Now we can move on from the triplicities to talking about the modalities of um, the fixed signs, the four fixed signs. And um, that'll be a good transition to go directly into the comparison between Aquarius and Taurus, with Taurus being the first fixed sign, uh, but it being a fixed Earth sign. And we've talked a little bit about. Um, the contrast between like like a 
science lab with Aquarius versus like a garden where you're growing food um, with Taurus. So in some of her notes, Camille writes that Aquarius's fixidity relates to the intellectual plane, whereas Taurus's fixidity relates to the material plane. Scorpio's relates to the interior life or the emotional plane, whereas Leo is fixidity of the self and holding on to that which provides identity and purpose, which sort of holds things together or holds you together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like Bear's idea of Taurus as a kind of outdoor education. Um, Aquarius would be like the outer space education. <laughs> and then Scorpio would be like the education that kids get from like having to relate to one another in the classroom. Mm. Okay, if we play with that metaphor, then I would think Taurus is the garden, hands-on, kinesthetic lab. In Leo, we're having a lot of fun and getting really playful about the upcoming harvest and planning the celebration. In Scorpio, we're fermenting things, and then Aquarius is the is the the lab where we like make our glass so that we can can for next year and then the kids get to like eat the stuff that they canned from from the fall and the the previous summer or something like that so Mm. it's like totally um, like how you eat in the middle of winter things that you canned or prepared during the scorpio harvest and mm -hmm. then also during aquarius season all of the seeds that you planted during scorpio season are starting to um like gestate a little bit in the earth unseen yeah yeah and like you know back in the day you would have gone into your root cellar to get your canned goods and those canned goods would have been things that you jarred in glass which is saturn um so yeah that kind of like needing to go into the lab to figure out or we can think about aquarius i think equally a science or like indigenous knowledge system so it's like oh we're taking all of this wisdom that we've accumulated from generations before us and we're applying it in a particular way, doing the right thing at the right time in the right proportion so that we can make use of this later in the future. Yeah, the future planning. That's Mm -hmm. so perfect. I think this is about when you would be like looking at your seed catalogs, thinking about getting ready and even thinking about like the Taurus, you know, Taurus being associated with the, the plotting out of the garden also time to do the math and figure out how many seeds can you put in a row and if i want these plants and these plants who goes next to each other happily that we can avoid the comp- the negative consequences of monocropping mm-hmm. if we're going to do a like a school schoolyard analogy then i would say um taurus would be cooking class leo would be theater or drama class scorpio would be the psychology class and aquarius aquarius would be the science lab class yeah, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> or also, um, I went to an art school and we had we had to do mime class, <laughs> which mm. feels like a very Aquarian kind of experience too. And we would do like all these exercises where you're like putting your hand against a wall that doesn't exist. <laughs> it feels so Aquarian, <laughs> right? Wow. <laughs> and also, mimes have like yeah correlation with clowns and everything. So science yeah. class or mime class. <laughs> mm-hmm. I like that. Oh, I went to a weird school that like was built in the 70s and they tried to make the layout all futuristic or something. So we had like these wings that were grouped by by themes. So it was like all the science and math classes were in one wing and then the PE 
PPE was near the cafeteria, so it's like all the tourist stuff was in one area. And then you go over to the Leo area and there's your like the theater and all the different arts classes were together. And then you go over to Scorpio and it's like psychology, but also the literature and the poetry and all those other like humanities access points. And then like, yeah, the let's get super technical in the science and math way. Love that. For sure. Um, all right. Is there anything else about, so we talked a lot. Is there anything else about um, the relationship between Aquarius and Taurus? that come to each of you that's worth mentioning? I mean, I think that, like, the relationship between time and money, Mm. like that, especially since Aquarius is making that overcoming square, and it's like, well, what is money? Like, thinking about Taurus's money, if we can, or like, you know, we I think we invented money so that we could make future plans about how to trade foodstuffs understanding the evolution of like human technologies correctly um Mm. so thinking about that like saturnian understanding the importance of time but also like let's say no to schlepping everything all over the place and bring the least amount of things that we need to so we'll get this precious gem from under the ground and i'll take it over the water and i'll trade it with you um and that's really just like this abstractification of the value of time and the relationship between time and food or effort in food that makes me yeah. think of in this taurus aquarius um square it makes me think about some of the like contemporary debates about like bitcoin and it not having anything that backs it up so therefore you know it doesn't have anything of value behind it so that it's meaningless and it's just like a token that's representing worth or value but then the, some of the counter arguments of like well what does any modern currency have backing it up if it's yeah. not if it's not tied to the gold standard or things like that? It's still just these these abstract notions of like of value and worth and um, how those things act as something that helps uh, society to exist because of the ability to exchange value and that the value that's in it is really just whatever society says it is or what the collective agreement is at that point in time about why that thing is seen as valuable Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah and that aquarius doesn't necessarily care about the like resource oriented value of something because it doesn't care about like human needs (laughs) like taurus is like well we need these things to survive and to live practical lives and Aquarius is like, I don't need any of that. I can just live off of air. I'll just become a breathitarian, and that's totally fine. <laughs> that makes me wonder about that period in Holland where tulips, like people were basically just mortgaging their houses and their family fortunes for like that one tulip bulb. I wonder if there was some like <laughs> some Libra, Saturn, Aquarius, something or go- something or other going on that created this like, well, you know what I really need is beauty. Like I'm going to die anyways and I need to see this tulip. Who cares about the house? Right. I love that. <laughs> um and then finally moving on to the last uh contrast which is just Aquarius and Scorpio. What are the similarities versus what are the what are the tensions between those two signs? It sounds like uh, since it's a water sign that we're contrasting with Scorpio versus Aquarius, one of the themes we've come up with a lot is like detachment or sometimes emotional detachment with Aquarius. Whereas with Scorpio, it seems like um, it's usually considered to be very different and being like extremely emotionally attached to things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like Scorpio placements are how we 
need our connection to others and how that um, like deep shared sense of experience can be central to human identity. And Aquarius is like, well, I don't need any kind of connection. I can live on a mountain by myself or live remote from the rest of society by myself. And so I think it shows like the the square between ways of connection because Aquarius needs some kind of belonging or this like larger sense of connection, but not necessarily personal connection. And there are a lot of Aquarians who prefer to be a more in a hermit type experience or more remote from others. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The first thing that jumped to mind was uh, like kind of um, if I like if I feel it, then it's real. My feelings are valid. All feelings are valid. Versus like the I think, therefore I am, and that kind of showing up in that in the relational domain. To your point, Aaron, I think we we see that show up with like thinking about Scorpio is equally crimes of passion and the reason that we have poetry and the reason that we have like intense um intense feelings intense affective processes going on and the way that i don't know part of me is thinking about the fact that they're both malefic ruled signs and it's like the the malefic it's naturally the nocturnal malefic scorpio being the nocturnal sign of of mars saturn being an aquarius that's the diurnal sign of 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 saturn and saturn's a diurnal planet so it's like these are these places where each of those planets really operates well, and maybe it says something about the um, the passion and the intensity that actually drives and motivates us to figure out like who's who am I who am I safe with who am I not safe with who feels like me who doesn't feel like me, and then like abstracting that into these ideological things or these external like aesthetic social markers. These people dress like that and listen to this music, therefore they must not be safe and they wouldn't really, I wouldn't really belong with them. They wouldn't get how I feel. I couldn't tell them like what I really X, Y, Z. That makes sense? Yeah. <clears throat> I was thinking of the being ruled by malefics with both signs and sometimes the um, rejection or standing outside of social conventions or focusing on things. For example, in Scorpio, sometimes we run into an issue of focusing on things that are off-putting or considered morbid to other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and you almost kind of get a, like a similar dynamic to a certain extent with Aquarius, where it's like doing things that are like edgy or that like rile people up. And it, I almost think of the crossover between those two as like the sort of sometimes like gothic or goth subculture, which has both of those elements of like that which is like morbid as well as that which is kind of like edgy and being deliberately like putting yourself on the outskirts of like the mainstream um as a result of that Mm -hmm. Mm, totally and and both scorpio and aquarius's propensity to like welcome death or notions of death or to simply be like very realistic about death as something that's part of life Mm -hmm. yeah or the idea go ahead just because they're both like fixed signs in the middle of those seasons, and one is the fixed sign that's in the middle of the fall season, Scorpio in the northern hemisphere, where all of the leaves are like falling off of the trees and the plants are kind of like dying, and then the other is the fixed sign that falls in the middle middle of the winter season, where it's just like everything is dead or dormant and cold, and you're just dealing with the 
finality of sort of being in the middle of that like lowest portion of the seasonal cycle and and dynamic mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. makes me think about a couple different like little euphemisms and turns of turn turns of phrase that we use like hot takes that seems like very scorpio versus like ooh ice cold salty those are sad <laughs> words um and that yeah the the way that either one of those signs i think would say that the people that really know the people who know the real me are the people that i can like show my actual anger show my intensity to who can like take my trauma and not be phased by it not be scared by my like hard by my scorpio experiences or maybe on the aquarius side it's more of like the people who really know me are the people who can hear my most like misanthropic contrarian takes and know that i still like love people and that i still have a heart i'm not just like some anti-human robot Yeah, that both signs have their own ways of being othered or scapegoated, um, but that the thing that remedies that for Scorpio is, like you said, to be able to show full expression or full emotion. And for Aquarius, it's more about being understood, like I need someone to get me or to be able to speak my language. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or yeah. like feeling safe when you can do full catharsis in in view of someone like the safety coming from profound depth of intimacy in scorpio versus safety coming from you give me space Mm. yes and both also as fixed signs seem to have almost a tendency to take things to their utmost utmost extreme or to be very serious about things and um because it just makes me think of a friend of mine micah who said that like at bars like one of their favorite things to say to scorpios is it's not that deep or what you're saying is not that deep just to like get a get a just to get a rise out of them if you want to get a rise out of a scorpio you say that's not that deep um and i thought which was pretty good like my my like eye twitched when i when i heard that but (laughs) i think with aquarius you might run into a similar thing is like if aquarius just outlined like this like broad you know system for the future or the like ideology or their thing that they've been researching intensely um and you said something like that, uh, you know, you might run into like a similar issue. Yeah. Yeah. Just be like, that's not that insightful or like, mm-hmm. I don't know, right. it's not that intelligent. <laughs> yeah. You're wasting your time. It doesn't matter that much. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Yeah. yeah. Or I, I wonder- already did that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Or, that's not that unique. You know, <laughs> yeah. that you, you're like other people have done that or let, you know, that's the same as this thing or something like that. Yeah, I think that might be the ultimate burn. Like, oh, that idea? You mean like this thing? And then you show that person the thing that they didn't know that their work was derivative of. Right. Yeah, that somebody did that like a hundred years ago already. Mm -hmm. I already feel attacked. (laughs) (laughs) All right. All right, we're back from another break. And one of the other, uh, apropos of that keywords that's relevant here for Aquarius and Scorpio, both being fixed signs, is longevity or staying power and they're slow to get going like most fixed signs but once they get warmed up sort of keeps going and lasts forever or sometimes like there's a greater sense of like permanence or or trying to to create something that will stick around for a long time Mm -hmm. all right so let's move on to other contrasts here as we're going through um we did the modalities we did the quadruplicities 
all that's left then is um, first the sextile signs. So first, we've talked a little bit about Aquarius and Sagittarius, um, but are there other things that are worth mentioning here at this point in terms of the connection between those two? Uh, one of them being ruled by Saturn, the other by Jupiter, one being a fixed air sign and the other being a mutable fire sign? Can I think yeah. about the two both in the context of like philosophy, law, society, and different the the social norms and the legal norms that kind of bookend what makes a state, what makes society a civilization versus a cultural group? For sure. I think both are very like there's an optimism or a future oriented looking that future orientation. I mean, Sag is the more optimistic one. But both of them have this sort of like looking ahead to the future type quality in some ways. Yeah, and Sagittarius is where the vision starts, whereas Aquarius might be more concerned about how to bring that vision into being. Mm. Mm. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, both are a little bit more extroverted socially and interested in social things, I think, to some extent. Yeah. Yeah, thinking about the diurnal masculine quality as being like upward and upwards and outwards. Um, and then something about the mm -mm, the thought ran away from me. Maybe coffee will bring it back. Yeah. Um, and let's see, even though so one of the things is one of the contrasts, obviously, when we went from Sag to Capricorn is the transition from like um, optimism, fundamental optimism to a sort of pessimism. Um, what happens though when we get back to when we get to Aquarius, when we switch? Because I, I know there's that future oriented, it's still ruled by Saturn. So there's still like a heaviness or a restrictiveness or a like a critical function with Aquarius. Um, that is a lot different than the Jupiterian nature of Sagittarius, and yet it's a little bit more complementary than it than it might be otherwise, or more than Capricorn. Mm. Mm, yeah, I mean, I think the diurnal quality is gives them this opportunity of like speaking the same language in a way, or this sense that um, there's some kind of shared understanding between the signs. Um, but that maybe whatever is like sparked through the optimism of Sagittarius um, can sustain itself a little better when we move into Aquarius. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. really good. Like more of a sustaining and being able to stick with things instead of just kind of being spread too thin or being sort of all over the place in terms of Sagittarius. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think Aquarius helps it choose in a way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and also more of a philosophical or sort of like ideological orientation as well. Perhaps could be something where they they get along, especially if their views are complementary. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking that Saturn has the cooperating triplicity lord of the fire signs, and so does have some affinity, more affinity for a Sagittarius than it seems at first glance. And the same is true for Jupiter and Aquarius. So perhaps mm -hmm. there's some kind of like. Um, implicit friendliness or the ways in which philosophy and law support society and society, but also the kind of restricting quality or retentive quality of Saturn 
when applied to law and philosophy makes it actually stick, like a law for law's sake, or a cool philosophical idea that doesn't have any practical grounding or isn't contained, um, just kind of gets you floating off in space in the same way that saying yes to everything means you don't actually end up doing anything. The no has to happen for the yes to mean anything. Mm. Mm, yeah, too many ideas means we don't actually have the focus or the sustain to actually bring any of them to fruition. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like Jupiter, Ju thinking about Sagittarius is basically thinking, hey, wouldn't it be great? You know, I think this is true and it means this. So wouldn't it be great if? And then Aquarius comes and says, those first two ideas? No, that didn't make any sense. There's no logic there. The second idea, the third one, that one really made sense. Let's stick with that. Tell me more. Like until the until Saturn comes and says, like, stop, no more new ideas. Keep this one. Do it longer. And it doesn't it doesn't have me. It doesn't stick. Aquarius is the editor of Sagittarius. <laughs> I think uh having a lot of Sag and Aquarius placements would probably be really good for like forming a cult. Because it's like Sagittarius is that like <laughs> philosophical inspiration of you have like an idea or religious idea or philosophy, but Aquarius is like, let's create a community out of that, which is entirely oriented around that. Mm -hmm. ah, that brought my thought back. Sagittarius and Aquarius are like upwards, outwards. Let's go connect to divinity. Let's go connect with the ultimate real truth of reality <clears throat> versus Capricorn and Pisces going. There's transcendent reality. Let's bring this down to Earth. Mm. Down and in versus up and out. Yeah, the pursuit of what's out there is like the business of Aquarius and Sag. Mm -hmm. For sure. All right, that's pretty good for those two signs that are in sextile. So moving along, the other sextile sign relative to Aquarius is Aries, which is a cardinal fire. Uh, masculine sign or diurnal sign ruled by Mars. So, in what ways are these two signs um, complementary or or different? Not wasting any time <laughs> and making a whole life philosophy out of that imperative. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Aquarius is very concerned with getting it right and making sure that you have all of the information before you take any steps. And Aries does not care about any of that and will take all the steps before even considering whether any of them might have felt right. Yeah, that was one of the major keywords and themes that came up with Aries was like speed and leaping first before necessarily thinking things out. And I know that's not typical, going to be typical of Aquarius and Saturn. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Been thinking a lot about Saturn falling in. Aries and playing around with the idea that planets in their fall or detriment are responsible for certain aspects of that sign rather than just struggling with the nature of the sign. I mean, both are true, but thinking about Saturn being responsible for the parts of Aries that make us not waste time. Um, and I've been thinking about that just talking to more Saturn and Aries clients over the last year or so and hearing this like consistent theme of the worst possible thing to do would be to waste time. But as we were discussing earlier, Saturn deals in the currency of time. So you can't shortcut that process. Um, you can't make time happen faster than it actually happens. So I almost imagine like Aquarius and Aries are 
relate so much that kind of like contrarian um all all rasm as my grandfather would say like getting in a good dig but it's it's dark humor with the good intention but it's a little spicy and pokey um but both of those signs kind of looking at the other being like you're the one wasting time look at you sitting there trying to get all the facts and figures taking forever because it's so serious and aquarius looking over there being like you're going to do everything first you don't want to like ask somebody if somebody tried that before and it worked or didn't um but they're like they're really on the same page they both want to do it as efficiently and correctly as possible um as soon as possible because the future is now or like the moment that mattered was two minutes ago yeah the the importance of now in order to create a better future and it's like that that saying or that proverb that the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago and the second best time is right now mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's very like aries aquarius vibes mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. all right that's pretty good. Um, definitely tensions, though, in terms of like impatience sometimes with Aries or, yeah, versus patience to see things out over a very long span of time that might stretch like centuries with Aquarius. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Aries is not concerned with the big picture. It's an impulse, it's a response to something that is just imminent in the moment, whereas Aquarius wants to make sure that that can fit into the context of like like you said centuries or like the big big picture of something mm -hmm. yeah for sure all right uh so moving on that's the sextile signs that leaves us then with the signs that are in aversion i believe which we've already covered capricorn and aquarius and pisces and aquarius so all that's left then is aquarius and cancer um, which are two signs which share no qualities in common, and then Aquarius and Virgo, which is the other sign that shares no qualities in common. So why don't we start with Cancer, which is a nocturnal or feminine cardinal water sign that's ruled by the moon, and in that way it, it almost like couldn't be more different from Aquarius, which is a fixed air masculine or diurnal sign that's ruled by Saturn. Yeah, I, thinking about the aversions of Aquarius with Cancer and Virgo feel like some of the most distinct qualities of the sign to me because Cancer and Virgo are essentially very human signs and Aquarius is quite literally in aversion to being human a lot of the time. Um, but with Cancer it's like the aversion to feelings and needs and like deep relationality um, and Cancer says, okay, well, we all have needs, um, we all have feelings, we all need connection, we all need to be nurtured, and Aquarius is like, ew, like, I don't need any of those things. I don't need nurturing, I don't have feelings, I am beyond those things. And so there's um, like a difficult conversation between the signs for that reason. Yeah, for sure. I like that. They like Aquarius as like the alien or the artificial intelligence of the zodiac and like how it relates to like cancer which needs I don't know like food and water and like emotions or other things like that that are very human qualities to survive. Mhm mm like cancer and virgo are thinking and feeling and Aquarius is like I am beyond all of those things. <laughs> right. It reminds me of it's like a like a Star Trek 
episode of Star Trek The New Generation where it's like they had Data who is like the cyborg or he's like a he's like a robot artificial intelligence but at one point they uh his inventor develops like a chip that they implant in him that lets him feel emotions and all of a sudden he can suddenly like feel everything and has emotions for everything and it starts messing with him and causing some problems because all of a sudden it's bringing in this extra dimension and like data set um into his actions that are causing him to act differently and create some drama but i feel like that's kind of what you get with cancer um aquarius combinations mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah thinking about the moon is the the word i use the most for the moon is is digesting you know the moon is is there to digest the things that our solar awareness brings to our attention and to to assimilate that as an experience and aquarius is busy saying no no thank you not now the future and you can't eat in the future you can think about food in the future but you like eating can only ever happen in the present moment um you know if you even try to breathe or talk too fast before you finish chewing then you start choking it's like zero percent in the cards um and so i think that cancer aquarius aversion really highlights the ways in which limits and boundaries if we think about like the blind spots not being necessarily something that's bad but a thing that the other sign can't see aquarius can't see how important it is that we nurture ourselves that we feed ourselves that we be somatically grounded in our bodies it's like the disassociation versus association being like embodied and somatically associated um so i think about those two and that kind of like stark opposition whereas for some reason maybe it's because mercury rules virgo and has triplicity in um in aquarius where the moon doesn't benefit in that way where i can see virgo and aquarius kind of somehow going i don't get why i get you but i do in some way and it's like the technology it's the process it's that future orientation where you know i think about virgo is being like cool i have all this grain that i've harvested but it's not anything i can do anything with nobody wants to chew on raw cereal it's very unpleasant um and so i think aquarius can be like yeah i don't really want to eat anyways and i definitely don't want to eat that you're going to do something that would make it more appealing to eat sure i'll i'll entertain that notion i'll stick around and wait and see what happens after you're done grinding this forever That makes me think of, I like those keywords you mentioned of like gathering and nourishing as good cancer keywords. And it also makes me think of some actual debate that's happening right now about AI and artificial intelligence about, you know, it's like an intelligence, but it doesn't have a body and whether um, it needs a body or whether something needs a a body in order to truly develop consciousness and self-awareness and some of the things that come with having a body or feeling embodied. Um, which can include things like, you know, self-preservation or fear of pain, you know, in aversion to negative states of physical embodiment and all sorts of things like that. But it's an interesting question just because that's a thing with AI is you can have like a intelligence or consciousness that doesn't have a physical awareness or physical manifestation. Mm-hmm. I wonder if it has something to do with time. Um I think it was Elodie Saint-Ange Abou 
I do not speak French. I hope that was at least a, a decent effort. Um, <clears throat> along with Chris Rapucci last week in, um, in a talk about magical approaches to working with Saturn for the International Academy of Astrological Magic um, or Association of Astrological Magic. And they were talking about the word obstetric that shows up with respect to Saturn and this connection that between, I think it's illuminating this connection between cancer the moon, birth, womb, babies, classical associations there. And Saturn... Diane, Diane actually used that keyword in the last episode as well. Yeah, obstetric. Mm -hmm. um, and that like standing in opposition to... Um, and there's a, a bunch of different ways that we can think about Saturnian retentive qualities, binding, stopping, slowing, um, but then also severing and releasing, being associated with the process of birth and incarnation and embodiment. Um, I think it just depends on like which direction they're looking and who's looking at who and what they're talking about in terms of the, like Cancer or Aquarius, the Moon or Saturn. Mm. Mm, it does make me think about like birth in the different modes of expression with these signs too, where Cancer is like birth happens in this particular way and children are breastfed by their parents um, and there's this sort of like bodily experience of it but aquarius is like birth can happen in many ways and children can be conceived and gestated and fed and nourished in many ways that might not be directly from a birthing parent or you know someone who's been physically connected to the birth experience itself and the aversion between those two perspectives as well Mm -hmm. I was just reading the other day. I, I didn't know this because I've never raised a child, but I didn't know that babies can't drink. You can't. You're not supposed to just give a baby water for like the first six months. That they either need to drink like breast milk, which would be Cancer, uh, or they need to be fed formula, which would be Aquarius, which is like a you know synthetic form essentially of breast milk of trying to replicate something that was organic using the same or even better uh, nutrients that might be part of the contrast here as well hmm. mm -hmm. you could mm -hmm. see virgo standing in there too thinking about like not necessarily mm -hmm. the field unless you're using soy formula but like going to domesticated plants and animals like goat milk i think was a really common one prior to formula being invented um yeah that makes mm -hmm. a lot of sense finding those mm -hmm. other ways of filling those needs and like mercurial substitution translation process there oh yeah didn't like hermes steal a whole bunch of cattle and you know we get a lot of nourishment from cow's milk as well so that makes sense mm -hmm. yes yeah, so, go ahead i was gonna say yeah he and then he used their their guts and a tortoise shell from a sad unfortunate tortoise uh, to make the first liar. So maybe there's that like Venus connection. Hermes is like, yeah, Horus and Libra, I have something to say for both of you or something mm. to give each of you. Take, mm. give, create. Yeah. So let's then, I guess, formally transition into that final sign, which is Virgo, which is a feminine or nocturnal, mutable earth sign ruled by Mercury uh, and its contrast with Saturn. So we have some complementary quality there in that we've got the Mercury connection and the communicative connection, um, but Virgo is a much more grounded sign because of that earthy quality, and it's much more organic in its orientation, which I think is different because uh, Saturn has that more 
Aquarius has that more sterile sort of component. Mm. Yeah, and there's a sense that Virgo is about the process itself, and Aquarius prefers to skip the process and simply be arrived in the thing. So Virgo is process-oriented. Um, Aquarius is beyond process. Mm-hmm. Something about you saying sterile, Chris, made me think about process of brewing. Like, yeah, you need that that sterilizing power of Aquarius. If you put all the grain in the vat um, from the field and you haven't sterilized that container, you, you don't want to drink the beer that comes out of that. Mm. Maybe there's also something there about Saturn and Mercury at least understanding themselves and understanding one another on some level that yields like Aquarius wanting the future to already be here, like already being attuned to what could be, giving the kind of like patience and wherewithal to re- repeat the process, to undergo the process of, of iteration. Um, that's another Virgo word that I like to like do iteration until gleaning the perfect process, the correct process and a way where you can then go translate it to the next generation. So you're not just like endlessly repeating trial and error, but actually having some sort of like cultural traditions around those processes and what they mean to society or what they do for society. Yeah. That makes me think of like a good like a place that would represent Aquarius, an Aquarius Virgo crossover might be an apothecary, where on the one hand, it's like you've got people that like went out for many, many years and just, you know, collected different herbs and tried different herbs and saw what the different medicinal potential was of different plants and flowers and things like that. But then also eventually from that, you get this larger tradition and like repository of, um, these things that have been passed down for generations until you see the end result of that being like a place that both collects together all these different herbs and plants that can be used for medicinal purposes, but also often has people working there that um, understand all of those different things and what their different combinations and and mixtures can do in order to help people. Yeah. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. And Virgo is very much a sign of learning and like the intake of information, like that process of going out and like learning about herbs in a very tactile um, way. But then Aquarius is very much about expertise and the sort of like perfection of understanding. And so you go into an apothecary and you're consulting the expert on herbs or someone who has cultivated like a, a broader kind of learning around it. Yeah. Yeah. Even thinking about like the way that alchemy, I don't know, the the image of alchemy kind of popped in my head when you said apothecary. Yeah. You go to the herbalist who's really focused on the plant materia and the process and the physical side of it and getting into that like small intestine Virgo connection versus somebody who's like gone off left Virgo and decided, I'm going to go hang out where Virgo can't see in the like thoroughly intellectual abstract um like theory of well what's happening aside from the body what's really going on there and that's when you get somebody who's like oh no this isn't about pigment it's not chemistry it's actually about transmuting lead into gold and that's a metaphor for this internal process i think Mm. you could see that there too for sure that makes sense 
Um, and the last imagery also, if people aren't familiar with like an apothecary, like a modern analogy would be like a pharmacy or a pharmacist, where you know they will you go in and you order uh, some medicine or something, and they'll like mix it together right there for you. But they're you know people that are generally working in a sort of s- sterile environment and have like lab coats, so there's kind of like this distance from it, but it's also got a compel an an element that's very. Um, yeah, connected in a in a bodily sense with something that will have a major impact on you to either help or or the opposite um, if you if you take certain substances. Mm. All right. Well, that was actually the last last combination that we haven't crossed. So I think that's it, and I think we've covered all the sign comparisons, and we've made it to the end of this very long fixed sign episode. Um, so thank you mm. both for for joining me today for this. This was amazing. Thank you for having it's me. So much fun! It's a yeah. really amazing, rich conversation. Yeah, yeah, so great. On this new moon in Aquarius day that we chose here, let me just put up the chart because I didn't um, record the time, but I know we started with like twenty eight or twenty nine Taurus rising today. So I just wanted to put up our electional chart for the day to document what we used for that, which would be right about there. Perfect. Yes, we have our beautiful <laughs> Venus bonifying Saturn as well. Yeah, and the moon moon applying to that nice conjunction with Venus. Um, mm-hmm. Awesome. So this was great. Um, what do each of you have coming up in the future, or where can people find out more information about your work? Erin, uh, what do you have coming up? Uh always consultations lots of ongoing consultations um which i love 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 so much and uh a few months ago i launched my family chart reading offering that i've been doing which has been incredibly deep and rich so um mapping out up to eight charts together of different family members and looking at some of the intergenerational themes there so i've really been enjoying those and um not announced yet but i will have some offerings coming up uh, late spring, early summer, um, probably around Pluto and Aquarius. Um, And also I'm going to be making some workshop offerings out of the intergenerational astrology work that I've been doing. So you can find me at erinfogel.com and sign up for my mailing list if you want to hear more about that um, or look for Queen of Swords on Twitter and Instagram. Nice. All right, Bear, what about you? Uh, got a lot going on uh, this year. In the next month or so, I haven't pinned down the exact date. I should be teaching a local in-person class on uh, working with the planetary days and kind of practical astrological magic uh, here in Oakland. And I'm working on creating a parallel online course um, <clears throat> that I'll be launching later in the year. I've also got uh, consultations as well. And I've been, for the rest of this month, until the 31st, so we'll see when this gets dropped, uh, I'm doing some Jupiter lightning strike sessions just while Jupiter's in in his own terms of Aries, uh, talking to folks about what Jupiter and Aries transit has in store for their chart, and also looking a little bit at the lot of victory and what other uh, timing techniques that pertain to Jupiter have to say about someone's chart, taking a deep dive there, doing um, planetary <clears throat> planetary days special focus sessions as well and then i've got my new newsletter um doing a better thans and b-sides looking at like making the best out of bad timing so 
uh, on the day that you shouldn't elect anything, but you have to do something, what charts can you use? And then I'm doing a, um, a magazine that should be dropping, the, well, will be dropping at the end of this year. But there's a, a bunch of other things I haven't, haven't quite announced. I'll be talking about a book soon, too. Uh, so lots of big stuff in store. You can find me at bearriver.com. Uh, and you can find me on Insta and Twitter at Bear River and YouTube at Astrologer Bear River. Nice. Awesome. Excited for your book. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, me too. Um, so I'll put a link to both of your websites in the description below this video on YouTube or on the podcast website in the entry for this episode. So people can go there to find out more information about both of your work and both of your consultations. So uh, thanks a lot for joining me today. Thanks so Thank much you for, again, having for having us, Chris. All right. Thanks everyone for watching or listening to this episode of the Astrology Podcast, and we'll see you again next time. Special thanks to all the patrons that helped to support the production of this episode of the podcast through our page on patreon.com. In particular, shout out to the patrons on our producers tier, including Thomas Miller, Catherine Conroy, Christy Moe, Ariana Amour, Mandy Ray, Angelique Nambo, Issa Sabah, Jake Otero, Mimi Stargazer, and Jean-Marie Kaplan. If you appreciate the work I'm doing here on the podcast and you'd like to find a way to support it, then please consider becoming a patron through our page on patreon.com. In exchange, you can get access to bonus content that's only available to patrons of the podcast, such as early access to new episodes, the ability to attend the live recording of the monthly forecast episodes, our monthly Auspicious Elections podcast, or another exclusive podcast series called the Casual Astrology Podcast, or you can even get your name listed in the credits at the end of each episode. For more information, visit patreon.com slash astrologypodcast. If you're looking to get an astrological consultation, we have a list of recommended astrologers at theastrologypodcast.com slash consultations. The astrologers on the list are friends of the podcast that have been featured in different episodes over the years, and they have different specialties such as natal astrology, electional astrology, synastry, rectification, or horary astrology. You can get a 10% discount when you book a consultation with one of the astrologers on our list by using the promo code ASTROLOGYPODCAST. The astrology software that we use and recommend here on the podcast is called Solar Fire for Windows, which is available for the PC at alabe.com. Use the promo code AP15 to get a 15% discount. For Mac users, we recommend a software program called Astro Gold for Mac OS, which is from the creators of SolarFire for PC, and it includes both modern and traditional techniques. You can find out more information at astrogold.io, and you can use the promo code ASTROPODCAST15 to get a 15% discount. If you'd like to learn more about my approach to astrology, then I'd recommend checking out my book titled Hellenistic Astrology, The Study of Fate and Fortune where I go over the history, philosophy, and techniques of ancient astrology, taking people from beginner up through intermediate and advanced techniques for reading birth charts. You can get a print copy of the book through Amazon or other online retailers, or there's an ebook version available through Google Books. I also recently published a new translation of the anthology of the 2nd century astrologer Vedius Valens, which is one of the most important sources for understanding the practice of ancient astrology. You can find that by searching for Vadius Valens the Anthology on Amazon or other online book retailers. If you're really looking to expand your studies of astrology, then I would recommend my Hellenistic Astrology course, which is an online course on ancient astrology where I take people through basic concepts up through intermediate and advanced techniques for reading birth charts. There's over 100 hours of video lectures as well as guided readings of ancient texts, 
and by the time you finish the course, you will have a strong foundation in how to read birth charts as well as make predictions. You can find out more information at courses.theastrologyschool.com. I also recently launched a new course there called the Birth Time Rectification Course, where I teach students how to figure out your birth time using astrology when the birth time is either unknown or uncertain. You can find out more information about that at theastrologyschool.com. Each year, the podcast releases a set of astrology calendar posters for the coming year, and we've just released our 2023 Planetary Alignments and Planetary Movements posters, which are now available on our website at theastrologypodcast.com store. There you can also pick up our 2023 Electional Astrology Report, where Lisa Scheim and I went through the next 12 months and we picked out the single most auspicious date for each month using the principles of electional astrology. You can get that at theastrologypodcast.com slash 2023 report. And finally, thanks to our sponsors, including The Mountain Astrologer Magazine, which is a quarterly astrology magazine which you can read in print or online at mountainastrologer.com. Finally, thanks also to the Northwest Astrology Conference, which is happening May 25th through the 29th, 2023, just outside of Seattle. This year's conference is going to be a hybrid conference where you can either attend online or in person. Find out more information at norwac.net.